Well, we're in the uh, third Sunday of Advent, and I have to say, this week, it was nice to uh, get away from the Christmas music uh, for this particular podcast, because I'm being inundated with it now. I like it, but it's just a little too much, don't you think? Yeah, I have to. You know, as you know, I limit my exposure uh, to after December 1st. <laughs> Your exposure. <laughs> and then... Um, it's like it's some guy with an opening his overcoat. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. exposing. Christmas music uh, is being exposed to me. Yes. <laughs> the uh, the trench coat is opened and then... Uh, <laughs> for the whole month of yeah, December. For the whole month oh. of December. And, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, well, in why if I could at all, possibly, I would put it off until this week. But, you know, I've already had a few weeks of it. And so it was nice to get away from it and um, listen to some other things. And maybe I can go back and uh, not only listen to uh, some of the new music for Christmas this year, but some of my old favorites, because I haven't pulled some of those out yet. Um, so, by the way, it's not too late. If you're listening to this episode 42 of Adult Music, the not Christmas episode. Um, <laughs> there's still time before Christmas uh, to go back to last week, episode 41, to our, our Christmas music, naughty and nice episode. And if you want right. to find some new releases for this year's season. Yeah, uh, next that, week aren't, be- uh, off, that aren't really beaten to death kind of things yeah. either. Not I think yet. we had no vocalist. Well, we had vocals in classical music, but they're, they're choral. That's a yeah. different thing. Yeah, and Nora yeah. Jones. And they're very old. Uh, oh, yeah, Nora Jones. I forgot about right. her. God. How could I forget about How her? I hear forget? her every day. <laughs> <laughs> now you do. Yeah. Maybe I'm just repressing. Um, no, I, I shouldn't do that because I'm just hearing too much of it. But no, I love that record. I think it was really it Just was really one more good. week and then we'll be free from it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, for listeners, um, yeah, yeah, the thing about Christmas music is that we did our Christmas episode and it's done. Um, so I just want to I want to recommend two more classical Christmas releases for you to listen to that I thought were excellent. And they were both actually recommended by Presto Music, too. And that's how I found out about them. One of them is a, um, a Renaissance era Christmas album called uh, An Elizabethan Christmas. It's by Fretwork and it's on the Signum label. And it's um, mostly music by William Byrd and uh, Anthony Holborn, um, played by Fretwork, who are a consort of viols, so an early version of a string quartet. It's sort of like if you think of these old, like, cello-looking instruments or viols, violins, without any, uh, um, what do you call it, um, vibrato at all. Uh, it's very pretty. It, it, it might be a little too somber for a lot of people out there, if anyone likes their Christmas to be peppy which i don't <laughs> i think well, we could i think we decided we both do it last week right? won't be peppy when you look at those credit card statements next month so yeah yeah well yeah get yourself that. in the mood another one is an album by uh christian karg soprano and she's playing with oh who was it i should look it up but anyway uh, um, i think uh anyway a good ensemble um, and it's um, called Licht der Welt, German, which means light of the world. And it's songs by three, um, sort of, um, I guess, romantic and uh, modernist composers that have to do with 
Christmas. So things by Saint-Saëns and you know, Ravel and um, people like that. It's pretty interesting. I've never heard anything quite like this before, like a, an assembling of all these just sort of leader, really, that, mm. that are about Christmas. It was really good. Uh, I found out about it a little too late for last week's episode, but I want to recommend everybody hear that too. I believe that's on the uh, – Oh, I don't know what label it's on. I'm not going to say because I might make okay. a mistake. <laughs> okay. But check it out. Just just do a search and you'll find it. Anyway, recommend it to everybody, those two as well. Because we're not going to talk about them next year because we'll probably have something else. Yeah. Or, or we'll skip the Christmas episode altogether. Who the hell knows? I don't know. We'll see. Oh, mm. and in jazz, there was an album I didn't mention because uh, it, I think it was actually released last year or the year before. But now it looks like it's been re-released uh, no. Because it comes up on the Deezer uh, new releases uh, mm-hmm. in as the deluxe edition. Oh, and, I hate um, when they do that. It's I so know. bad. They add well, three songs. Now I got to buy the album again. And I have a feeling <laughs> that, well, the way these were released is uh, similar. Anyway, it's uh, the Stephen Feifke Big Band, uh, who we've done two of their albums. And yeah, we really like them actually. Yeah. So the the second one we did. The prelude, I think it was called that. It was actually recorded before the album that you know we just first discussed, and then that one was released uh, later. Even though it was recorded previously, I th- you know a lot of these recordings are going to digital first, and it's hard to see if there's a CD. So anyway, uh, this is pretty good recording. It's uh, with uh, the trumpeter and vocalist Benny Benak, uh, "Seasons Swinging Greetings," and. Uh, I guess I haven't heard the deluxe version, so maybe I'll go back and see what's on uh, there. And um, I think it may have been a shorter release before. And hey, uh, you also get the uh, the dreidel song. So how can you go? Is wrong? the dreidel song on that? The dreidel song is on it. Yeah. Oh wow! I mentioned that last week. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it would have taken for us to call it a holiday episode. Holiday special. That's right. But we we uh, we went with Christmas. There you go. Yeah. All right, so this week we're we're getting away from that. We're getting away. It's episode forty-two of Adult Music Podcast with music for the mature mind. And as always, listeners, uh, please note that in the episode description you're going to find. Well, actually, (laughs) you'll find (laughs) links to Spotify and Apple Music for some of the music. Oh, because I chose a Hyperion release, two Hyperion releases this week, so they don't have any. uh, they don't release their uh, music onto uh, these these streaming apps. That's right. Well, good for uh, them in a way, but you just can't. You can only sample them on their website. You right. can't really hear the whole album or track. Yeah. So for those releases, I've got the uh, Hyperion Records page where you can hear the samples, and also uh, Presto Music uh, where you can purchase them uh, if you so desire. Uh, all the rest you'll find for Apple Music and Spotify, and then those tunes which are available on streaming the recordings uh the episode playlist for deezer our preferred streaming uh provider and uh, you can also listen to the podcast on deezer and see our playlists our username is adult music podcast now if you don't see the links on whatever platform you're listening to on or uh, the view is not uh, easy to see. Everything's clear and easy to follow over on our host, Podbean. uh, And you can uh, check out all of our back episodes there as well. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Take a moment, give us a ranking, 
write a review that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. And we've been near the top in music commentary in Podbean, which is nice. Uh, because because that rule. helps us. Yeah, we rule. <laughs> I think we were number five, which is nice. Yeah. And that helps us grow our audience, get us new listeners. And if you'd like to contact us directly, if you have any comments, questions, complaints, bring it on to our email address. Yeah, or, or if you just want to wish us Merry Christmas, uh, yeah. send us a message. We'd love to hear from that. Just You'd say we'd hi. love to hear your holiday wishes. Just say hi. Let yeah. us know who you are. Yeah. We'd like to know about our listeners. Our contact yeah. is Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Yeah, I want to mention, by the way, we did hear from Bruno D'Ambra, whose album we uh, talked about. Suviana. Uh, back, yeah. He he wrote to he wrote to me on my Facebook author page. Okay, so you can check that out there. He he wished us uh, a merry Christmas and happy yes, holidays. That was nice. Actually, of him. He, I think he specifically said happy holidays, which which was very nice of him. It was very thoughtful. That's so right. we'll we'll be hearing more from him apparently in the I future. I wonder if he's so listening to good. the podcast. If you are, Merry Christmas, Bruno. Merry Christmas, Bruno. And yeah, uh, and to your whole your band and yeah, keep <laughs> us updated on any yeah. new releases you have. Be happy yeah. to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Are we ready we're to go gonna, here? Uh, because, um, we're going to uh, go way back in the time machine to start out this week, aren't we? We are. Now, I'm going to mention, first of all, when I was thinking of the classical, this is the last um, podcast of new material that we're doing this year. Next week, we're going to talk about our uh, favorite releases of the year that we have featured on the podcast mostly. And so that'll be our last um, podcast of the year. And then we'll be right back and, you know, next we'll have a podcast next week. And then the week after that, January 2nd, we'll be back to uh, talking about new music, new recordings that came out in 2021, basically, because. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think anything will come out. It's too soon for anything to come out in yeah. 2022. Although on January 7th, I know that uh, Hyperion is releasing two albums that I definitely want to talk about on this podcast. So that we'll do that. Um, probably towards the end of January, beginning of February at some time. Yeah, I have to get them and hear them. Hyperion, of course, Records, of course, does not release their music to uh, streaming sites. Um, and I've chosen two of them today. And the first one is an album called by the Jesualdo Six um, called Josquin's Legacy. Now, one of the reasons I chose this for today is because if you will recall, this 2021 is the 500th anniversary of Josquin's death, and since it's ending, I thought we should go out with some Josquin. Sounds and good. And this was a particularly good record. Yeah, why not? Oh, by the and, way, uh, yeah, that uh, Jesualdo Six Christmas recording is quite nice as yeah, well. Yeah, that came out. Um, that, I think it was last year. Last year, yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. I do have that. Yeah, they do a uh, an acapella like. Um, harmonized version of Jingle Bells at the very end of that. Mm. Which yeah, it's, is a nice, it's a nice Christmas album that's not overly Christmassy. So, Yeah. Know, How did you manage to hear that if it's in Hyperion? You just sample I think I, you borrowed, I borrowed that from you. Yeah. Oh, okay, because I do have that one. I have yeah. all of their releases. I've just liked what they've done so far. Yes. I don't know that I'm going to keep up with them, though, but they are excellent, and so mm. is this album, by the way. I'll just, you know, <laughs> there it is. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Uh, this is a pretty great record, too, just like everything else this ensemble has released. Okay, so... Oh, by the way, we're not done with Josquin. We're, we're, we're planning a guitar episode in the future, right? 
That's right. And uh, yeah, there's going to be a Josquin guitar album that I'm going to feature on that. that oh, cool. I think you'll really enjoy. It's not guitar. It's going to be a vihuela, but that's a different album, not this one. So I don't want to talk about that yet. Okay, so this is called Josquin's Legacy. Now, if we will recall, Josquin was the great composer of his era. Um, he lived uh, from 1450 around to 1521, so the uh, Renaissance era, the earlier Renaissance era. And um, he's also, I mentioned, I think he's also partially responsible because he was such a great composer um, for uh, drawing the church's ire towards him because he was writing these incredibly florid works that you couldn't understand the words because the counterpoint was so dense. Uh, so the, this this led to the church uh, wanting to uh, actually eliminate the Catholic Church. This is eliminate music <laughs> from the mass, <laughs> and uh, like the lone. I think uh, Robert Greenberg compared Palestrina to the Lone Ranger riding in to save the day. We have music in the Catholic Church today, really, because of Palestrina. He figured out a way to present this this, this counterpoint in a way such that you could uh, understand the words. So that was his big. Uh, you know, genius stroke. And actually, Palestrina's Wait. counterpoint is taught today in music schools. To this day, people they did that all without that. amplification and auto tune. Yeah. Wow. Without auto tune. In <laughs> fact, when you hear this album, this this Gisualdo Six's album, Just Gans Legacy, the one I'm about to talk about, yeah, there's no auto tune on this no. at all. And it's unbelievably accurate singing. It's really amazing what human and beings can do. What's really amazing about it, mm. because you know, the first time I listened to their previous album, the Christmas recording, yeah. I didn't right. realize I was listening to an all male yeah. vocal huh. ensemble. So right. the uh the high range uh, voices, uh this is all a bunch of dudes, all guys. Uh <laughs> so um, that's pretty amazing too, because uh, the vocal range, along with uh, the flawless technique, and uh, it's done in a very well. They are English, so uh, yeah. you know it's uh, sort of uh, has some sort of Englishness to their style yeah. of it. Uh, but that makes it very uh, clean, and yeah. uh, the performances are incredible. Yeah. yeah, England being one of the great, um, having one of the great choral traditions in the world, along with, I right. believe, Russia mm -hmm. and the USA, mostly, you know, the the uh, Black American USA. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 really yeah. have a really special sound when they sing. I think the the Scandinavians have a good choral tradition too, uh, especially okay. for religious music. Yeah, I believe it's that. nice that they keep this going. You know, because. Uh, a lot of this music, uh, especially the religious music, is it lasts forever. I mean, when you mm. listen to this, it's it's amazing to think how old uh, this music really is. Well, in a way, you share it with that era and all the eras that came in. Although people stopped listening to this until just recently, when it was rediscovered in the, uh, I guess, the mid twentieth century. This right. wasn't being sung before that because it had disappeared. There was a repertoire, and right. that just keeps being expanded and expanded by um. Uh, you know, researches and things like that. And it's just made my listening uh, life just so enjoyable. It's really been fantastic. You know, I've, I've I pretty much um, started listening to classical music in college when I was in my, um, you know, late teens, early 20s. I was just kind of dipping into it. And at this time, all this like period instrument stuff had come out and I was listening to rock and roll. And there was something about 
or rock music, let's say. And there's something about period instrument sound that it was kind of edgy. It wasn't like this kind of smooth blend right. that would have put me off at the time. So that I got into it like right away. And it's still like that. It still has a certain edge to it, but we've gotten used to it, I think. And what I like about bit. this mm. music, um, you know, we've talked about this before, but it, it's really hard to listen to this, you know, really extremely old music without coming through the filter of our expectations yeah. from knowing Baroque, classical, and you know, romantic and, and modern music. This is before all the conventions and sort of rules that I think solidified in, you know, Baroque era exactly. came about. Um, however, most of it sounds extremely familiar and relatable, uh, most of it. But there are really surprising sort of things mm. that happen occasionally and sort of uh, dissonances or changes in direction that yeah. really do surprise you. And for me, yeah, the whole idea of building up dissonance and then finally resolving it into consonants really yeah. hadn't taken hold yet. Yeah. So yeah. most of it sounds like it conforms to the logic that's been sort of established and imprinted in your minds of, of Western music. But there are points that are really sort of, um, I don't know, they sound even fresh um, yeah. because they, they're, you know, doing something, you know, that to them that was, just, you know, exploration, yeah. but it, it, it and wasn't that we just don't do anymore. Against, so it's fresh to us too. Yeah. You know? So that's what's kind of interesting to me about it. Yeah. This recording is pretty fresh to us too, because it's the Gesualdo six are just that they're six uh, male voices. Right. And uh, because of their only six voices, you can hear every voice very clearly. Um, the recording is very close, and uh, it's very rich, and it's it's fantastic, really. I thought it was mm -hmm. the clarity was just amazing. That's not always the case, especially with Josquin's music. His his writing is often very florid. Now, this isn't an album only of Josquin's uh, music, although he has um, most of the works on it. It's him and his contemporaries, and there's one um, of his forebears, and then there's one. Um, the the very last one is um someone who came from the generation after him. The first work on the disc, let's talk about this now. This is called Joscan's Legacy on the Hyperion label. Uh Johannes Akagame um is the composer. 1410 to 1497. Oh boy, that's a long time ago. Very this good is, years uh, if I remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> you know? No plagues that time. No plagues something. that yeah. I'm not so I wouldn't be so sure about that. No, I got my my knowledge of those that history isn't really too present at the moment. Anyway, these are all church not they're not all church works. This particular one is um, Intemarata de Matar, which means un, undefiled mother of God. Okay, mm. there's a lot of uh, so actually a good time of year to be listening to this, isn't yes. it? Uh, with uh, Christmas on its way. All right, so this is uh, this these all of these works are just one long work, but these the uh, album has divided them into three sections, and the sections are kind of decided by where the resolves come. There'd be like a resolve and a pause, and then you go on to the next section. Um, the, I said that the six voice having only six voices on this make the texts and the contrapuntal lines really pop. You know, like it's sort of like a modern work. This couldn't possibly have sounded like this back in the 
1400s. <laughs> it's it just wouldn't have been sung like this. I think it probably would have been sung by a larger group. Hmm. Uh, they weren't just professional like amazing singers like wandering around. Okay, well there were there were individual singers, but uh, you know not like this where they're going from town to town and singing these songs. These would have been sung in church. Um, by choirs who rehearsed a lot. This wasn't for the congregation to sing. Um, yeah, it's a gorgeous recording. There's a lot of fantastic melisma, one of the great pleasures of uh, Renaissance music. Uh, melisma, when uh, you have a lot of different notes being sung on a single vowel, like you have the ah, and then ah, ah, ah you know, see, it just keeps going on and on. Uh, I really love that. Um, yeah, all the harmonies register clearly, and the singing is just fantastic in this group. They just will never let you down. Um, the second bit, Nexina Temanet, which means not without you remains, any respite, um, contrasts with um, the previous one. Um, they're singing without counterpoint in this one, so it's really a, a, a textural change, textual change that you'll notice if you're actually paying attention. Please do. <laughs> and uh, as Pisiad Facito, have have your son look, meaning the son of Mary, which is Jesus. Um, flowing counterpoint, long-held vowel sounds rather than melisma. So you're hearing a lot of, ah, <laughs> for long periods of time. The third uh, movement's a little bit more animated here, too, uh, in contrast mm -hmm. to the first two. All right, next we get to the man of the year, Josquin Dupré. Okay. <laughs> Nymph de Bois. And uh, this is um, Requiem Eternum. Now, Requiem Eternum is really the um, the third section of this. Um, this is a lament for the death of the composer we just heard, Aka Game, who was Josquin's uh, forebear. Um, he's mentioned by name in the text that's being sung. Um, and the text references Greek divinities like uh, Atropos, and that was one of the Moirai, who, is a, who are goddesses of fate and destiny. Um, Akagame is referred to as the true treasure and masterpiece of music. High praise from the greatest composer of his era, Josquin. Think of him as Beethoven in 1450. Everybody looked to him. Mm. This is luminously sung, and there's a detectable teardrop in the voices, like they're genuinely sad that Akagame has died <laughs> 600 years ago, however, <laughs> however, however long ago that was, less than 600 years ago. I wonder if that's the genius of Josquin's writing or the ensemble is creating the effect. Probably a little of both. Mm. Okay, the second uh, bit, the second part of this, the second section, um, it's very brief, and it mentions several of the composers of the era who we're going to hear on this album. This is a pretty interesting program for this reason. Right. Um, so um, he's telling them to put on their mourning clothes and weep, which I'm sure they're doing anyway. Um, and then the third movement, Requiscat in Pace, rest in, rest in Peace, is a simple, it's very simple and very brief. Okay, we get away from Josquin. Uh, the next, the next composer is Loiset Compère, who I'm guessing is French. Uh, Quis numerare queat? Who is able to number the savageries committed in war? <laughs> this is the whole first line. Um, the title is definitely relevant today, so maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this could be made into a contemporary piece, right? It's got a big grand opening with voices going at full power. It'll 
just uh, this is a good test for your stereo. Actually, it's it sounds great. Okay, the the second bit um, is a bit quieter and subtler than the opening. There's a big contrast. The counter tenors, re- tenors really stand out in the middle section of this, uh, with high piercing vowels as the lower voices progress through the syllables in the text more quickly. So they're singing the text where the uh, the counter tenors, who are really up front, are holding those vowels for mm-hmm. a long time. They falsetto voices. And the third bit is quieter still. So it's like we're getting sadder and sadder as at, um, as this goes on. Uh, there's a cantus firmus singing the church prayer da pacem domine. The cantus firmus is usually in around the tenor voice or somewhere in the middle. And then everything else sort of decorates that. But it, there's a different text decorating this. Common at the ear at the time. I think we got away from us uh, singing different texts at the same time. Something somebody might want to uh, bring back. By the way, actually, um, if you, if anybody out there is into like rock music or uh, the the band REM in the '80s before they hit their high, their their fame in the '90s, they used to do this quite a bit in uh, their early albums. They would sing different texts at the same time. It was pretty interesting. I think it, I think that might have been part of what got me into this. It's <laughs> sort of, sort of idea. Hmm. I kind of um, interesting. Yeah, it's always a leap. Thing. Well, it's not really though, because if you think about it, um, what, what, why did I start listening to classical music in the first place? Well, it, it could have been like seeing Fantasia as a kid, the G- Disney movie. Right. Um, it's inspired a lot of people, and um, it's it's a good leaping off point. It's a great introduction to um, to classical music. You know, we should do an episode. On the new Disney movie Soul, which could have been Fantasia for Jazz, but they messed it up. Oh, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that so later. So I've read, yeah. Oh boy, that it could have been. I saw it too, and it started. It, it, the, the beginning was so great. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be great," and then they just veered off into this unexpected direction that had nothing to do with music at all. Unbelievable! They messed it up. Anyway. That's for another episode. <laughs> Just stick anyway, with the music today, yeah. Stick with the music. Just ah, they had a great storyline going too, and then they got into this weird thing. Oh, I don't even want to start with this because I know I'm gonna forget anyway, about it. Moving, forget about it. <laughs> so as we go into my New York, my native New York patter. <laughs> oh boy, if I hadn't listened to classical music as a college student, I'd. I'd still be talking like this. <laughs> I, I, I kind of am in a way too. It's a, you can kind of detect that in there. I'm aware of that. You got something anyway, to say about that? You got so, yeah, you got something to say about that? I don't think so. Don't okay, think so. anyway. <laughs> Next. Okay, track 10, Antoine Brumel. Uh, to le regret, to le, I can't even say this, regret. Man, this has a very spare text, and it's sung in harmony, not counterpoint, with pauses between phrases. Very easy to follow the text. It's a brief lament for love that isn't working out. So uh, let me tell you, your wife or husband or your honey is leaving you. You got lots of company <laughs> from a from the, the ages. From, through the ages. I should say that's, this That's one. what's so great about classical music, isn't it? Yeah. This one is um, one of those ones that has some... It, yeah, it has a, a lot day. of cadences, okay, right. that come, that just keep coming. But working up to them, it, this is one of the ones that has some of those uh, real harmonic surprises. Yeah. Uh, and the voices yeah. move. And, you know, the, you've got these lines, as you say, uh, this one is um, 
uh, different. It's it's um, not counterpoint type. Right. So you notice the movement of the lines uh, and where they intersect. Some of the intervals that come out are really surprising, and then they hit these cadences, which sound uh, quite you know reassuring and familiar uh, to you. But uh, along the way, there are some unexpected. Uh, things that pop up. So I enjoyed uh, this Brumel. Yeah, the Brumel, track 10. Okay, so you can listen to that. Next, Pierre Delarue and Josquin Dupre. Now, I was wondering if this was a collaboration or what, and I didn't read the booklet notes, so I never uh-huh. found out. Oh, well. Anyway, you can you can read them on the Hyperion website, by the way. They, pu- they publish them. They post them on there, that site under the CD listing. Absalom Fili Me, the text is a conflation of several biblical texts, um, uh, about Absalom, the, um, the this character, uh, Delarue and Josquin. Okay, tracks twelve through fourteen is Josquin again. Ilibata de Virgo Nutrix. Oh, that sounds cool. Uh, mm. It means uh, unsullied virgin nourisher of God. <laughs> oh. That should be an album title. Should it should be a heavy metal album title. <laughs> it I does think. sound kind of heavy metal. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Okay, the counter tenor starts this one off with an upward melody. I was just and, thinking, uh, of the word, my mind made a word dominutrix. It could be Domin- dominatrix. Yeah. <laughs> dominatrix. Yeah. yeah I don't know if it was that, a, that, something yeah. to do with whips and chains or a new kind of vitamin nutrix. You know, I think I that know. says anyway. more about your religious upbringing than you wanted to. <laughs> I don't know about Let's erase that. I'll delete that from there. Podcast. No, no, leave it. Leave it. I want everybody to know what's happening on this podcast. Okay. All right. Uh, usually a single voice will start the melody and other voices will fill in the harmony. Um, but in this case, um, the countertenor kind of really cuts through. Uh, the text is very clear in this. It's often sung with a single, very audible voice before the counterpoint follows. Pretty interesting technique from Mr. Josquin. He's referred to as Josquin, by the way. The Depray part is not his... Um, it almost comes yeah. off like fugue-like the way that it uh, yeah. comes in, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Like It'll start with a theme, and then like the, everybody else will start playing on it, and then mm-hmm. that'll stop, and it'll start again. The ensemble colors their voices in such a way that each one stands out. Yeah, this is fantastic. What, this is one thing about this ensemble I wanted to mention. They They have a way of each... Now they've been they've obviously gotten together because they all have different sounding voices that are easily done, but they'll pronounce the words like in different ways. Like one of them will use a more nasal tone, and one of them will you know be a countertenor, and another mm. one will sing with this big full throated sound. And that you can kind of tell who each one is. Like the the voices all have such different colors that it's sort of like hearing all six voices on different instruments. It's really interesting, and. Uh, then we go through this whole work. Next, Antoine de Fevin, Nessien Mater, the Virgin Mother Knowing No Man. Okay. Um, this starts with a typical counterpoint and then thins out as it goes. Uh, the text gets more um, audible. And I like this piece a lot. I don't have very much more to say about it. I, well, worth hearing. Jean Moutant. Yeah, go ahead. This one has got some unexpected kind of harmonic tensions. Yeah. That come up too. Uh, this was another one that uh, I noticed. You know, some things. Whoa, you know, it made me sit up when I was uh, listening to. Yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> Next, Jean Mouton, Kine Regatois, a lament for Favin, the previous composer who apparently had died. 
after his death. Whoever didn't mourn him, one of the one of the lines in the text is, "Whoever didn't mourn him is surely a villain." Ooh. Wow. <laughs> Strong words from Jean Mutano or whoever wrote the text. I imagine it might have been him. Anyway, next, Adrien Villert, and he's the generation after Josquin. Uh, and we can kind of hear the influence on him. His music is actually more complex than Josquin's, so he's building on this. This is called Infelix Ego, uh, which I think is, I didn't translate this, I think it's Unhappy Me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it means. Mm. I don't. I don't. I didn't do Latin in school. I know a lot of you uh, people from England in there probably did, but they eliminated it from our Catholic studies when I was a child. And I and I am not happy about that. I would like to know Latin. Okay, this is very slow and spacious in the harmony. It fills in. The writer has sinned and asks where he can turn. And then in the second part, we learn where is he going to turn. Not not to the Ghostbusters, but to God. Okay. Next, Heinrich Isaac. Or Isaac. Esto mihi. May, may there be for me. This means. Um, this is an understated piece. A quietly sung prayer for God's protection. And the uh, second bit is sung like a Gregorian chant. There's a line that's just uh, yeah, very short in harmony. Very short, nice yeah. Harm- nice harmony, though. Yeah, a brief harmonized line ends this very brief section. Next, back to Josquin Depré. O Virgo Prudentissima, O Virgin Most Wise. This has a gorgeous opening, with the countertenor singing high on a single repeated note. Uh, the melody gets handed off between registers. Oh, so it's There's a, a lot of pleasure in this one. bass yeah. intervals in this one, too. There's yeah. really uh, impressive low voice there. Yeah, when they get to the uh, the two the the verse that starts two Stella Modis, you star of the sea, uh, I thought that was particularly lovely with the countertenor singing the main melody with echoes in the lower registers. It's so beautiful. I liked it so much. And it just kind of varies the textures between each verse in this movement, and he has a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this I, this is worth uh, single this this particular one out. O, o Virgo Prudentissima by. Uh, Josquin Dupré, if you listen to this recording. What's um, interesting about this one, too, is, you know, a lot of these, um, this period music works with these kind of open intervals that, you know, they don't sound particularly like, um, as we would think, as like a major chord or something. Right. But this one, at the end, has an almost kind of major sounding cadence to it. And hmm. it just gets this more kind of um, brightness uh to the you know kind of harmony in it that a, a lot of the other you know voice movements seem to avoid and here you you kind of get that different resonance coming through so I, that one stuck out to me uh, that uh, yeah when oh, and also the the second section of this um, has a nice opening as well after that there's that cadence at the end that you mentioned and then the second part opens. Um, with the tenor singing the opening melody and the bass is repeating the first notes at the lower octave. It was, it's right. really kind of a magical effect. You don't really never hear octaves so much in music like this. It was really like the tenor, it's, ah, oh, it's, 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 it's pretty mm. amazing. It was a great sound because it's so unexpected. And then the voices start interweaving after that. This was This is really special. I liked it a lot. Okay. Tracks 24 through 28 are Josquin again. Uh, tu solus qui fat, 
Chis Mirabilia. I'm using my uh, Italian style Latin. I know in England they'd probably say like Fakis, but the C becomes a K. But in English, in Italian, it's more like a CH. Anyway, this one, uh, You Alone Who Do Wondrous Things, this is called. Um, this is sung in fifths, I believe. It's sung in a perfect harmony. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's fifths, but fifths and fourths, I can get confused between those. It's a very pure sound. Uh, and the whole section goes like this. Do you hear fifths there? What did you, did you, do you remember it? I didn't uh, make no. a note on it, no. I thought um, it was fifths. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a perfect harmony. I know that. See the fifths. Yeah, fourths. because it, mm. I think. I think it's probably uh, in fifths, and because in the because it usually is. I mean, in the really third movement, uh, yeah. has a, a variation from that that gets he sort of gets a third in there, and that comes as a surprise right. to the open. So it fills in the harmony. Uh, yeah. So you hear it as major, I guess, or my. I don't know. I don't remember that what it was. Yeah. The second bit is uh, sung as octaves with the counterpoint creeping in. It's kind of interesting, and then the uh, last part. Um, um, oh, the the fourth section, "Dung autre amère," was was actually used in a in a mass that Juskin wrote as the theme mm -hmm. of the mass. So that's kind of important for that reason. It's very brief though here, and the the last part is uh, fifths again, I think, with some contrasting lines moving in the opposite direction, creeping in and disappearing. Really beautiful. Okay, we go to. The last work on the disc, Jean L'Héritier. This is the generation after Josquin. Miserere Domine, have mercy on me, Lord. Um, this is thickly contrapuntal. So this is kind of like before Palestrina. This is kind of the thing the church was kind of starting to uh, rail against. Um, to the point where you can't follow all the voices, so you're listening to the passing harmonies as your mind flicks from melody line to melody line. <laughs> At least that's what I found myself doing. Uh, this is the generation after Josquin. You can hear it getting more complicated, but there are Josquin masses that get pretty thick too in the harmonic texture. Mm -hmm. um, this moves rather slowly, and I guess it's an illusion made by the harmony. When there's really thick harmony like this, it tends to get kind of sludgy. Notice that here, said, yeah, yeah, that. What he's doing here compared to the earlier ones, and I, I don't know if they had a terminology at this time, but you know, we would call them suspended chords, you know, like right. suspended fourths and suspended seconds. There's huh. those notes that are carried over and then kind of resolved. And I don't know if they had a theory for that at this time, or it was just something that they were experimenting with. Um, but I notice he uses that repeatedly in the the first movement of this, uh, which is I hadn't heard coming up to here. So if this is the next generation, it could have been, you know, sort of the thing to to do at the time. You know, I suspect it's something that happens naturally as as um, the music goes on because it happened again in the late Romantic era, like composers like Mahler, and you know, it started with Chopin and by by the, by Mahler's time, especially Wagner, um, where they they'd have this. Um, you'd have this dominant chord and you, there were all these other substitute chords that could just sustain the tension forever. You know, it, just, it would right. just keep going on. And these symphonies got longer and longer and longer. And I I think that's kind of just kind of a natural thing that happens as music goes on and you want mm -hmm. to uh, create tension and uh, you can't do it the way your forebears did it anymore because people have gotten used to it. Right. Yeah. You know, so they just accept it as normal. Now you have to come up with something that's a little abnormal to make it... Um, <laughs> register again that way 
Uh, then we got up to Schoenberg, who just did away completely with, <laughs> with harmony, <laughs> just using old 12 tones. Oh, boy. All right, the texture changes in the second part of this to the lower voices, and it lightens up a bit, and we hear all the voices. Very complex counterpoint in this last work, and I think they want to sh that the Gesualdo Six want to show us what Josquin had wrought by the end. Okay, this this kind of complicated thing, which would lighten up with Palestrina in the future. Anyway, that's this album, um, Josquin's Legacy by the Gesualdo Six. Boy, if you like uh, contrapuntal singing, Renaissance music, or just choral singing in general, this really is a must here. These voices, are, these guys are just fantastic. And mm. they make a really unique sound. And if you're interested in the textures and the uh, individual uh, melodies, um, very easy to hear on this beautiful recording. Highly recommended if the style appeals to you. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, moving on. I am going to... Uh, Today I've decided to go for the uh, the the women's album next. This is the um, this is um, three musicians and they don't have an ensemble name. Thomas Albertus uh, Imberger violin, David Garingus on cello. I'm familiar with him actually, and Barbara Moser on piano. They're all well. Uh, the violinist and pianist are Viennese, and uh, Garingus is Lithuanian. Um, and these are piano trios by women the album is called it's a girl where with an exclamation point at the end oh yes. on the album oh i see <laughs> on the album <laughs> it is, I, when i first Didn't looked see at that this, coming anyway <laughs> i thought uh the the uh label i thought what i first saw it is not granola uh, yeah, it's not the Oh man all right the, the record label yeah. is gramola with gramola, an m yeah. Yeah. Like Michael Gramola. That could be uh, the, a, the breakfast food of gramophone listeners. You know, yeah, gramola. gramophone yeah. gramola. It could be yeah. gram pronounced gramola too. Yeah, I don't know. I'm guessing gramola. Uh, mm -hmm. Vienna Austria label. Also, it's an SACD. Thank you, gramola, for that. Um, so mm -hmm. you get surround sound, or you get your DSD. I wonder um, if it was a a, um, a native DSD recording. I'm going to check that out. Mm. It, it it it's in surround as well. No, I don't think so because there's a CD layer as well. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, oh, really? With that, yeah. But um, okay, maybe um, native DSD might have this one. It, I would I think be, it probably is. I would be interesting in in getting the DSD version of this if it was uh, recorded natively. Um, Anyway, I'll have to, I'll have to send this your way, actually, the uh, physical copy, which I have. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, it would be worth getting because it's actually really great as well. This is quite a quite a find. Um, the, um, three generations of musicians are playing on this album, by the way. Uh, Imberger, the violinist, was born in uh, 1985. Geringus is uh, 75 years old. And Barbara Moser, the pianist, is 51. So... Mm. Uh, Nice. I like to see the generations playing together. Right? You got it's Boomer, Generation X, and Millennial all in one. Yeah, there nice. you go. Would he be a Millennial? Eighty-five. I think uh, that's still. Um, I think that's still. Um, Generation X. Is it X? Well, you uh, got I don't Boomer, know. and you yeah, got I guess uh, it is X. Gar that's Geringus late X. would be. Yeah, but Geringus would be the. He's from the uh, forty-six. He's a, he'd be one that's of the boomer. first Boomers, that's wouldn't big boomer, he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yep. Seventy is. Um, Oh, she's uh, Generation X, definitely, Barbara yeah. Moser. 
And I think 85 is still Generation X. That's still honest. X, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You're getting towards the end, though. I don't know. Is he jaded like me? I'm See, I'm technically... I was born in 1965, so I'm technically the last year of the baby boomers. But I relate more to Generation X because, I don't know, you know, the whole... You know, I, I'm... It's just... <laughs> It's just a label as far as if you're going to call me a baby boomer. I'm no, really shut not. up, boomer. <laughs> I just don't, yeah, I just don't have that. I don't have that mentality, you know. Child of the 60s, but the 60s was the time when the baby boomers really kind of took over. So I wasn't really if doing you were, anything then. If you were, a, a, you know, born and you couldn't experience the 60s, I guess there was no point in being a boomer. Yeah, right? you can't I mean, be a boomer yeah. if you weren't experiencing the 60s, you know. I mean, uh, right. You know, I don't know. I didn't, I don't remember them. I mean, for me, the 80s were the big time. So, you know. That's right. Yeah, one, one thing about, I want to say this about the baby boomers always talk about how their music was better than anyone else's. But I don't know. In the 80s, we had really great music. I can't complain. I There's always good music. It might there, not there be what's is. the most popular music. The 70s music, was great. But... Well, I don't know. There's still good music now. It's just not popular. <laughs> so, right. But it's easy yeah. to find if you are yeah. willing to look. So that's why we're or, here. If you listen to the adult music podcast. That's right. We'll find it for you. We'll find it for you. <laughs> we'll tell you what to listen to and yeah. you must listen. Anyway. Yeah. When we want your opinion, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. So. <laughs> That's right. As Red Fox used to say. Yeah. Okay. He's okay, a he boomer. Was a, he was a baby boomer <laughs> too. Yeah, right. Oh man. All right. This is the best podcast ever. I can tell already. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> It's a girl. Okay, so these are all women composers. So I, I certainly hope certain listeners that I know out there who live here in Japan are going to be happy that we're talking about women composers. Are those I your, actually, are those I your have feminist people I know friends? here. Hmm? My feminist, feminist friends? friends? Yeah, they're feminist friends who don't like music, though. But oh. one or two oh. of them do. They want to know, but I get it. You know, they, they want don't to buy kind of records. Know what, <laughs> they don't buy records. <laughs> But I get it though. They want to hear like the music women made because they 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 sort of relate to that. They want to hear those um, what what sentiments they're going to come up with and things like that, or or what ideas. Anyway, the first composer, a composer I've kind of had a lot to say about on this podcast, Louise Farranc. She's French, but she sounds German. Um, a trio for flute, cello, and piano in E minor, Opus 45. Now, I keep complaining that this composer sounds like Beethoven, but she really doesn't hear. This particular work was written in 1857, and it was her last chamber work. Um, and this is, um, I, you might have heard, trio for flute, cello, and piano. That's the original orchestration. Um, here, um, her publisher asked her to add an alternative violin voice before he published the work in 1862. And that's the version we hear on this album. Um, okay, the first movement, Allegro Deciso, it's a four-movement work. It's pretty big. Um, and it starts dramatically with shrieking chords and a drumming bass on the piano. And then we get an expressive flowing melody over hammering piano chords. Okay, very dramatic, uh, very lively. The themes are all appealing and even amiable in the second theme. And I said that they're Beethovenian. I always compare this composer to Beethoven, but they don't sound like Beethoven. Some of her earlier works did kind of sound like Beethoven, but this really doesn't. This really, She's really got her own sort of um, 
melodic uh, shape or sort of uh, or use of material in this work. Um, we get a repeat of the opening material then, as was uh, typical of the time. Uh, the minor key lends a th- themes and aggression when paired to the quick tempo, but not sadness. This isn't a sad work at all. It's a pretty aggressive work, actually. Um, this It sounds urgent. In the development, we get some nice dramatic material as the themes intermingle, and the recap sounds gentler, the recapitulation when the opening material all repeats. It sounds gentler. The orchestration has changed in some way, and there's a bit of a coda at the end that generates electricity. Dramatic chords end the movement. Very worthwhile. This is the best I've heard from this composer. And I think this whole work, actually, is the, is probably the best one I've heard from it, or my favorite one, let's just say. Actually, with this, um, I felt it's, a, it's very much uh, starts out with a romantic kind of uh, feel to yeah. it. But as the development sections come through, I feel that uh, she's going back to the classical era. Classical kinda. styles. And then there right. are even a few hints to uh, sort of Baroqueisms uh, in there. So uh, compared to the other works I've listened to, as you said, they're very much sort of that, uh, you know, early, early romantic type of thing. I thought this one has some more interesting sort of hints to, you know, previous eras that she pulls in uh, once uh, the theme starts to get developed in there. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, but the, the thing about that, what you just said, the whole classical thing, this piece was written in 1857. Mm. And that era pretty much ended in the 1830s with Chopin, Liszt, Schumann, Mendelssohn, and Berlioz, right? So this is like 20 years after that she's right. she's writing like this. Okay, Beethoven was still everybody's hero in the Romantic era. But um, anyway, no, she's but she does have her own sort of um, kind of profile in this work, and I really did like that. Okay, the second movement, Andante, so a slow movement, the movement for the heart, song-like, a lovely theme. Again, in the Beethoven mold, but doesn't necessarily sound like something he'd come up with. Uh, the orchestration is really lovely, with cello pizzicati accentuating the bass line on the piano at some points. Nice effect. There's a lurching theme that provides contrast to the opening again with lovely details, as when the cello plays legato melody and the violin plays short phrases above it. When the main theme comes back, it's in the piano, with the violin playing figuration above it. Uh, the cello enters with the theme and the piano accompanies. Nice uh, handoffs here and just sort of transitions. Uh, the melody is handed around in unexpected ways, and I enjoyed this a lot. Uh, the movement ends suddenly on the tonic, but without resolving all of the tension. So you hear the tonic chord at the end, but you don't. You kind of feel like there needs to be more to come. And we do get more in the scherzo, the third movement. Um, Scherzo would also be a title that Beethoven would use. This replaces the menuet and trio of Mozart's era. Okay, the Scherzo uh, Vivace, and then there's a trio section, very traditional. Uh, Virtuosic rushing Scherzo, where all the instruments get to play the rushing figure, and the trio is quieter and more ruminative. The fourth movement finale is Presto. There's something ghostly about this rushing, continuous melody of the opening, and it reminds me a little bit of the fourth movement of Chopin's uh, Piano Sonata Number no. 2, especially at this speed. It's not entirely um, like that. It doesn't have that 
that same the same feeling but it really does feel like um Farrakh has made a, a leap into the romantic era here um it hints at romanticism but the classical lines are still intact the entire movement moves at high speed and high energy the ending is beethovenian so we go back she this is a composer that likes to like she'll kind of go to the um you know where music is in her era but then she'll always kind of move back sort of mm-hmm. to like an earlier time um it's got an emphatic ending chords and there's a nice false cadence fake out just before the end that made me smile i have to say um you, you think the piece is going to end you hear that cadence coming and then it, oh it goes to another chord that's a, it's a really really cleverly planned i liked it a lot anyway recommended work um I'm curious to hear this work in its original version with the flute instead of the yeah, violin, by the way. I couldn't way. imagine yeah. it very well listening to the violin, yeah. um, just because um, it's... Uh, it's such a standard sound. sound you know? is so like uh, endearing. He has a really nice tone. Yeah. Uh, I, I was having a problem imagining what that's going to sound like on flute. Uh, be be interesting to hear it. Hmm. Yeah, I would like to hear that myself. It's an unusual kind of a combination of instruments though yeah, mm. somebody will probably put it out one day though okay next we had uh, Melanie Hélène Bonis or as she was also known as Mel Bonis apparently because it sounded like a man's name <laughs> there was a lot of this uh, done at the time to get the your, their music sold poor women they were um, you know not permitted into the men's club shall we say anyway this piece is called Soir Matin uh, written in 1907 uh, for piano trio two is this two works and one reflects the different moods at the end of the day and the other one is the early morning the first movement soir is andante cantabile and it's more conservative in harmony than matin it's got a romantic sounding opening and it reminded me of foray really um, very french sounding yeah it is very french sounding it's very pretty with the cello and violin dovetailing with the melody while the piano plays an accompanying bass figure. And it comes across as a heartfelt romantic work. The second uh, part, um, which is called Matin, is Andantino. It sparkles with chromaticism and a bubbling agility paired with unusual modulations. That's from the booklet, by the way. That's not me. Uh, my what I have to say about this is it sounds completely different than the first movement. Um, th- these, these two works don't really sound. Yeah, they don't sound like they go together at all. Really, mm. they sound like they should probably be played separately. Um, muted strings on both the cello and violin, while the piano plays ghostly figuration in the upper register. It's a really interesting sound that sh- that uh, they conjure here, and that um, uh, Bonis has um, uh, or Boni probably has written here the strings provide interesting combinations of sound as atmosphere when the piano solos and the string writing is pretty inventive uh this still comes across as a romantic work in its harmony though the sound is more impressionistic Mm. meaning sort of like debussy or late foray maybe i like the chiming high notes of the piano at the end as the muted strings wind down it's really nice i like this a lot very pretty Mm -hmm. yeah um hear this it's it's worth hearing Okay, Mel Bonis, um, Soir Matin. Okay, next, Amy Beach, or as she's called here, Amy Marcy Beach. <laughs> Piano okay. Trio in A minor, Opus 150. It's nice to hear Amy Beach's music getting uh, more of an outing. I've heard um, 
I've heard this piece before. It's been recorded before, and but and it's, as is has some of her other um, chamber music, and it's all very good. She's an American composer, born in Henniker, New Hampshire. And um, yeah, she's a good composer. She's someone who should be on a lot of um, programs, especially American programs. She's also a very romantic composer. And French-sounding, yes. And French-sounding. You can kind of tell. Well, and now this isn't to say that you know these um, these women composers are looking to Europe, but all American composers at the time were either sounding German or French. Um, this is the 20th century is really the time when American composers started sounding American, and it was after um, Dvorak came to America and said that you know your native music should be kind of like mind for these bigger mm. orchestral works. I mean, Stephen Foster's music doesn't sound European either. No, not so, at all. No. Yeah, they're kind of, they're very American sounding. So. But he was from the 19th century. But again, that was a different genre. Uh, classical music at the time was looking towards German models mm. and in Amy Beach's case, French models. Um, but anyway, let's take a look at this work. It starts with a romantic pedal blurred figure in the piano. As the cello plays the forlorn opening melody over it, uh, like someone lamenting on a windswept plain. This kind of reminds me of a lot of those paintings, you know, the, you see someone like on this open plain, just kind of, I don't know. The, the, this, high plains drifter? Yeah, she's a high plains drifter. <laughs> oh, I, that kind of ruined the mood of this piece there, I think. I don't think it's that was what I was going for. All right. Anyway, that high plains. The, the lamenting on the windswept plane bit evolves into a fuller orchestration of the theme uh, played in harmony on the violin and cello. It's stated dramatically later over histrionic piano chords. Amy Beach uses a lot of histrionics in her work, so it gets very agitated. A lot of it does. Um, a romantic gesture, let's shall we say. There's a nice moment when the rhythm suddenly breaks into a brief waltz. This was a little magical, actually. I didn't expect this to happen. And it just goes away. It, 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 there's this waltzing rhythm that suddenly happens. And uh, it's almost like saying, hey, this is in 3-4. And then it just disappears. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. It caught my attention. The movement ends quietly with the piano figuration sweeping under the fading violin and cello. All right. Second movement, the middle movement. This is a three-movement work. Uh, Lento espressivo. So this would be the slow movement. This movement goes, this piece goes fast, slow, fast. Um, is a slow and expressive romantic sounding melody. And it's got a contrasting middle that has uh, children at play quality to it. So it's sort of like excited and sort of sounding disorganized, even though it's really not. As the repeated note melody is passed around from instrument to instrument, this goes back to the more romantic lento melody. As the piece winds down, the playful middle melody makes a brief appearance and ends the movement. The third movement, Allegro con Brio, is aggressive and virtuosic piano accompaniment, underlines the rather neurotic violin and cello melody. Wow, we're really going for uh, histrionics <laughs> here. Uh, this winds down to something slower, mostly played by the piano, with violin and cello occasionally interjecting. Melodies then begin being passed around, and the strings take it over for a verse. As the original material returns, the orchestration is reversed with the strings playing the aggressive accompaniment and the piano playing the chord-based theme. And it's kind of a nice effect in this case. The piece goes into an angular sounding 3-4 for the contrasting section, then quickly resumes the opening material and scurries to the end. 
nice. I liked it. Mm. Okay. Onwards. Sonia Eckhart Gramate. 1899 to 1974. She was born in Moscow, Russia, immigrated to Canada, and became a Canadian citizen. She's considered to be Canadian, a Canadian composer. This is called Ein wenig Musik, which is called a little piece of music. Um, it's in the form of a rondo. The piano opens with a bass line and melody, which the violin and cello repeat as they enter. And this work kind of acts as a palate cleanser after the um, Amy Beach. Uh, with a gentle descending melody, the violin and cello trade off. The first contrasting section is still slow and rather brief. Uh, we get back to the opening where the piano plays the melody solo, and then the violin and cello overlap with it again. The second contrasting section isn't much of a contrast at all. It's just a brief departure from the main material at the same tempo. If it's even that, it might just be a variation of the opening material. The opening repeats, and there's a playful ending on the piano. It's a pretty work. Um, maybe it's not a rondo at all. Maybe I just heard it that way. <laughs> I might be wrong. But it's pretty. I liked it a lot. It's nice. Yeah. Last work, Julia Francis Smith. American, born in Denton, Texas. Yeehaw! Lived from 1905 to 1989. Denton, by the way, is where Snarky Puppy formed. Although they are now in uh, New York, I think. Huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so there you go. Um, anyway, this piece is called Trio Cornwall, and I don't know why. I didn't read the notes to this um, CD, and I really should have now that I think about it. Anyway, first movement, Allegro Giusto. I liked this work a lot. This is pretty interesting. Uh, Julia Francis Smith, you want to remember that name. Starts with a lively set of chords and repeated note figuration on the strings. Uh, repeated note accompaniment under the violin, which plays a melody. Uh, the second theme features a lot of pauses and fragmentary melody, and the movement takes on a perpetual motion feeling in the development section. So it just keeps, the rhythm just keeps kind of like, it's almost like a snowball that's sort of uh, rolling down a hill and gaining in volume. It's pretty exciting writing. Uh, the orchestration is inventive at parts, especially in the recapitulation. The ensemble generates good energy throughout the movement and really throughout the entire album, we could say this. Second movement is a theme and variations. Uh, the piano plays the theme solo at first. It's a pretty simple melody played in thirds, if I recall correctly. I really hope I'm hearing this right. I haven't done ear training in years. Anyway, it gets a winding variation in the strings. Uh, then there are just a lot of variations. Uh, we get a second variation with the cello and violin playing figuration, and the piano plays chordal figures. The third variation is pizzicato with the piano supporting in the bass register the fourth is broad and overly dramatic the fifth variation um actually i'm not sure if this is the fifth or sixth at this point um it has a floaty dance quality to it like a habanera rhythm the fourth um, one gets some like bluesy qualities to it which yeah. is kind of cool um yeah the broad I one noticed. yeah yeah after okay. the pizzicato the next one right Okay, the piano then plays a highly ornamented variation, which the cello takes over. And then um, there are piano trills accompanying the violin. And it ends rather unexpectedly on a surprise resolve. It just kind of sudden ends suddenly. And we go to the third and final movement, Allegro Quasi Rondo. Quasi Rondo is always a really interesting uh, labeling because it's not a rondo, but it kind of acts like one. Mm. It's a lively theme. A rondo, by the way, is like you have one main theme that keeps returning. 
Lively theme that quickly starts developing at high speed. The first departure from the rondo has a slow, dancey quality to it. Then we get something that sounds like a fast tango rhythm, mostly played in the piano, with pizzicati on the violin. We hear the opening melody again, this time in its tango form. There's a lot of inventive orchestration, which we've heard all over this program, really. Um, the piece ends quietly and slightly. This is a very enjoyable work and a nice discovery for people who might be looking for a piano trio to play. In fact, if you're in a piano trio, you might want to check out this album well, and, and make some of these works part of your repertoire. The end of this one actually ends with a little country hoedown. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. So I thought, yeah. I mean, there's a Americana right there. And I thought, right. oh, you know... This is a Texas girl at heart, you know, maybe uh, a real Dixie chick before, <laughs> before <laughs> the Dixie, Dixie chicks were out. Yeah, because um, I noticed that hint of bluesiness in the second movement. And then the, it's a definite, uh, you know, American country influence at the end of uh, of the third movement. So there's a lot of humor in her music. Uh, and I enjoyed that. Um, some yeah, this unexpected was a real discovery terms. for me, yeah. too. I liked yeah, it a lot. Like Julia Francis Smith would like to hear more of her music. If you're a musician out there listening, you might want to record some of her other music. Okay, now my third and final choice, I had to go back to the very first podcast for this one. When we decided to first do this podcast, we did a 30-minute or 40-minute podcast as our first episode ever called Hello World. And um, the classical choice on that was a record by Stephen Huff the British pianist, called uh, Vida Breve. So that was our first ever podcast. And being that mm. this is the last um, podcast of the – well, it's not the last podcast, but the last um, podcast of new music of the year, I wanted to end with Stephen Huff too. He recorded – he released two other albums this year. This is the second one that he released, Schumann, Piano Works, Arabesque in C Major, Chrysleriana, and Fantasy in C Major, a work I really love, by the way. Okay, now this is like pretty much um, repertoire work. This is the kind of thing, like if you're going to go to music school, you're going to inevitably, or if you're going to make a career as a pianist, you're inevitably going to learn these works and probably play them live, at least when you're a student. They're very difficult, and they're um, they really separate the men from the boys as far as pianists go, see if you're going to be able to do this or not. I want to point out, these works were written... Um, his, at the, in the late 1830s. Now, I want to give you a little context for this. If you think about popular music, the 1960s were the big era of the electric guitar, right? We think about the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and just the electric guitar in general, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, okay? If you go back to the 1920s, that was the, the big band era. So swing, you know, if you were alive in the 1920s, swing was just in your blood. It was just everywhere you listened, especially if you were in America. But even in like Western Europe as well, it had traveled overseas. The point I'm trying to make is that the 1830s were the era of the romantic piano. This is when most of the, or the, or the very, the, all of the first and some of the most famous of the great romantic piano works were written. It was it was kind of like what the guitar was to the 1960s. The piano was to the 1830s in Paris specifically, and uh, everybody who was somebody on the piano lived there at the time. Chopin, Liszt, Mendelssohn. Now Liszt and Mendelssohn would eventually go to Germany and uh, 
kind of form their own sort of schools. But um, the 1830s were a happening time for the piano. Anyway, here we have a, a program of Schumann's piano music played by my personal favorite pianist, Stephen Huff. Although I, I like Stephen Osborne a lot too. Sometimes I have trouble choosing between the two. I really like them. But um, he's playing a, a program of Schumann's music. And I have to confess, um, as I, well, as I get older, I like Schumann's piano music more and more. When I was younger, I really didn't like it much. I don't know. It's it's really quirky and very odd. But as I get older, I love the creativity that's in it. It's His music is a fusion of reality and fantasy, um, sort of like the writings of E.T.A. Hoffman, if you think about the story of the Nutcracker or um, if you've seen the, uh, the movie The Red Shoes. Um, these are all E.T.A. Hoffman stories. Um, and he inspired uh, Schumann as well, as many other composers, really. Um, his music also, Schumann's music also fuses poetry and music. And as a result, if you listen to Schumann's songs, his songs are really magical. The words can't be removed from the music. They're almost like soldered together in some odd way. Um, a, he's really unique as a composer in that way. So if you kind of play it like as an instrumental without the words, it it somehow loses something. Um, his piano music is often in multi-sectional forms, as we'll hear in Chryslerianna on this recording. And they're really bound together by the pianist's handling of time and texture and the listener's willingness to go along for the ride. And this is from uh, Natasha Loge's booklet note. It's sort of like the case with movies. I remember um, when I was a kid, um, we were watching, uh, my dad and I were watching a uh, James Bond movie. And um, some villain uh, or band of villains pretty much shoots at James Bond at point-blank range, and he runs away, and he doesn't get shot. And it really upset my dad. He's like, how could they miss <laughs> from that distance? But the point is, I don't know, at that age, I just sort of intuitively understood this. You have to be willing to let go and just enjoy the excitement that's such a a scene kind of pre pre presents you. And I think that's the case with Schumann's music as well. You have to be willing to go along with it, um, really, because it's really so unusual. And um, the pianist Stephen Hoff, what a joy it is to hear him in these works. They're difficult to put across due to their quicksilver nature. They're constantly changing, and uh, the emotions are constantly shifting. And uh, Huff is just such a great pianist for this kind of music. He's um, he, he's got this real um, you know presence and um, so authority that when you're listening to this, you just know you're hearing it the way it's supposed to be played, even if it can be played another way. Yeah, within one movement, there's a lot of resets and yeah. changes, and I could see how it could be very kind of emotionally wearing to play through a program of this because uh you know it it there's various climaxes and and changes of direction of uh sort of the feeling that the music is striving for and then uh, again it's going in a different direction and it all calls for sensitive sensitivity to dynamics and uh all within one movement even uh so i, I can see there's a big demand on the, the uh sort of range of expression that you need to have ready 
to get through uh, just one piece like this. So. Yeah. Oh, incidentally, I want to mention too, this is a great recording of a piano. Um, when we did uh, Vida Breve back in February in our first episode ever, I found the uh, recording to be really distant. Mm. And it, I guess to encompass like the big climaxes in the... Uh, Huff's playing, but this one is recorded more like I'm used to hearing Huff, and um, it's 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 a beautiful recording. It's very present, and all of the dramatic uh, material registers very strongly. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Oh, by the way, um, if you're interested, um, Stephen Huff, his third release of the year was a, a disc of Chopin's Nocturnes double album and um, that was only recently released and is getting amazing reviews I actually haven't heard it yet but I'll, I'll have to listen to it because I really love this pianist a lot okay anyway the first um, piece is um, arabesque excuse me god in C major too much whiskey here <laughs> Writ written in 1839 Okay, this it's um, a six-minute work, but it's cast in a fragmented multi-section form. Uh, the piece is anchored by the regular return of the opening melody. Um, it's the opening melody is kind of an amiable, innocent-sounding theme, and it's got a blocky second theme. The third theme is very slow with lots of rubato, and then we return to the opening. Um, the arabesque nature of the piece has to do with all the decoration around the simple melodies. Like, the melody will be in the middle. Like, if you're playing the piano, this really is a pianist's piece. Um, the, the, the melody's sort of in the middle, and with the um, fourth and fifth fingers of the right hand and of the left hand, you're playing like a bass and like a sort of like a, just an accompaniment in the right hand. And with your thumb, you're pretty much playing the melody with your thumbs and like index fingers. It's really nutty. <laughs> it's, it's sort of hard to play. Um, that's why it's called arabesque, I guess. Um, next is a harsh attack is made on the melody um, in a dotted rhythm. Dun, da, dun, da, dun. Okay. It softens at the end. The main melody returns again. And this is sort of like a rondo, whereas the theme keeps returning. Um, Huff plays the work with plenty of excellently judged rubato and plenty of shadings of dynamics. And that's really what makes this so listenable. Um, if you listen to an amateur pianist play music like this, it's just not going to come across. You really have to put something of yourself in it to really make it work. I mean, Schumann leaves a lot of room for the pianist's personality. Okay, after the theme, we get something slow and reflective, uh, higher in the pianist's range. And the piece ends with this uh, slowing, dwindling rhythm and melody. Okay, tracks two through nine is Chrysleriana, one of the uh, great Schumann piano works, written in 1838. Um, the title comes from the fictional pianist Johannes Chrysler, who appears in the writings of E.T.A. Hoffmann. He has this... Um, white-hot sincerity when he improvises at the piano. And uh, in Hoffmann's books, he's the uh, paradigmatic romantic composer among people of the time. So he's really what every pianist was striving to be, basically. And Hoffmann sort of, you know, took, like, all the elements that he loved of the best pianist and put them into this one guy. Okay? Each individual piece itself divides into several contrasting sections, recalling the imaginary Chrysler's wild mood swings, which is a, 
uh, and a, a appealing thing about romantic composers at the time. Hmm. Personally, if I was alive at this time, I, I know I would have hated all of these people. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just wouldn't have been able to bear to be around them. But I like their music a lot. Anyway, <laughs> thankfully, I was born when I was. As well as uh, the two alter egos that Schumann had invented for himself. Okay. Schumann kind of... He he actually called himself after these alter egos too. One of them is Floristan, uh, who is exuberant and uh, just bouncing all over the place, and Eusebius, who is an introvert. Each piece explores an extreme, an extreme of some sort, either in speed, in intimacy, uh, in sinisterness, tumultuousness, reflectiveness, whatever. If these emotions are going to come up, they're going to be presented in an extreme. Um, so this whole set, listened to, to together, is an emotional roller coaster, and it's no wonder for professional pianists love playing them. First movement. There are nine, what, eight movements in this, right? Yeah, eight movements. Um, I don't even know how to say this. Ausserst bewegt is the Ausserst um, bewegt is the label. This starts dramatically and passionately, and it's loud. It has lots of figuration outside the main melody, like in Arabesque. It's kind of nicely paired with the opening work, in fact. Uh, this has a calmer middle section with similar figuration, which goes back to the passion opening. It's a pretty traditional ternary form. Okay, the second movement, to me, is the one that really expresses Schumann's character. Sehr innig und nicht zu rasch. It's got a quiet and innocent theme, which rises and falls, and this would be Eusebius at work in his introverted nature. After this section, something more exuberant is heard in complete contrast, which is Floristan's character. And uh, the piece pretty much goes back and forth between the two characters. Um, it's got a big full sound in the parts in all in the louder parts um huff projects this beautifully and grandly um the quiet introspective section returns and we eventually hear the familiar opening in a different guise then more or less an original tempo but orchestrated differently the movement ends with eusebius getting the last word it's very quiet longest movement at eight minutes and 47 seconds here the rest of the movements are fairly brief Third is Ser Aufgeregt. This has a pretty odd galumphing rhythm in the bass, which rises into the treble. And then we get a contrast, luminous, clear bass line, and the melodic line over it. It's ternary form. The galumphing rhythm returns to end the movement. Um, Huff's articulation of the melody in all of this is amazingly clear. Fourth movement, Ser Langsam, starts with quiet playing of chords with the melody stretched over them. Again, the gradation of tones that Huff gets is a real pleasure to listen to. Uh, the contrasting middle section is louder, with a climbing melody and arpeggiated bass, and lots of rubato, very expressive, in Huff's hands. Fifth movement, Ser Lebhaft. Lots of brief trills in the melody and figuration. It sounds active, like it's jumping everywhere on a pogo stick. And the music quietly eventually it quietens into something more subtle with rubato than the opening pogoing melody and rhythm. Um, it comes back and dissolves again. A very loud outburst of passion arrives and fades into quiet rumination. The opening returns rather quietly. Then, at its opening tempo and volume, 
we hear the theme again. This movement leaps from emotion to emotion and sounds very erratic. Huff manages to make it sound all of a piece. In fact, I want to mention something about Huff's rubato playing, and this makes me want to hear his Chopin nocturnes as well. He's so good at this. Like, rubato is kind of a, a slowing of the rhythm. It, it, kind of, it should sound like elastic, like a rubber band being stretched, and then we go back to the rhythm. And he's so good at just projecting that um, that feeling. You just get the feeling that you understand why this technique exists. It's really good. Sixth movement, Ser Langsam. Very quiet and slow opening with many pauses between phrases. Again, an outburst of passion with arpeggios leading up to each melodic note. Think of uh, the pianist Chrysler. The imaginary pianist here, whenever those outbursts of passion come, it's his his kind of quicksilver nature, his 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 romantic nature can't be contained. <laughs> this quietens as our composer Chrysler regains his composure. Seventh movement, Serash. Outburst of passion with volume and fast virtuosic figuration around the melodic material. There's some very impressive virtuosic playing here from Huff with each note clearly articulated in the texture. Pretty amazingly played, really. Last movement, seventh, Schnell und Spielend. This has a leaping appoggiatura melody with ghostly held bass notes supporting it. This is really Huff playing very quietly in the bass. Great technique. There's a middle section with a louder volume, then the leaping material returns. I especially like the quietness with which Huff plays the bass notes and holds them to underpin what's happening. There's another outburst, so this is kind of like a rondo-type theme again. The opening leaping material returns, and the movement and piece ends with barely audible staccato bass notes. Phew. Okay, well, if you're not exhausted after that, <laughs> the, the Fantasia in C major comes next, Opus 17. I actually like this work a lot. Mm. This was um, a rather unique um, interpretation of this. Now, Huff has played this before. In the 80s, he made a recording of it on the, um, I guess, the Virgin label. It's it's now available in a box called the Arato Years. Um, he wasn't, those, those records weren't released on the Arato label at the time, I don't think. But anyway, that's beside the point. He's re-recorded it here. Uh, the first movement, all of these movements have very descriptive um uh, you know, titles. Um, I'm not a <laughs> Durchaus Fantastisch und Leidenschaftlich Wurzutragen, which means to be performed completely with fantasy and passion. <laughs> no problem, Robert yeah. Schumann. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, this movement, by the way, quotes uh, Beethoven's An die Ferne Geliebte, which is, means to the distant beloved. There's this absolutely gorgeous romantic opening to this piece. Oh, play this on your stereo at home, your best uh, recording equipment. It sounds fantastic. Um, one of the uh, pleasures of romantic music is that the bigger pianos that were being used at the time uh, were able to produce overtones, and composers wrote with that in mind. And we hear this this big romantic opening full of overtones and perfectly judge rubato from Huff. This is a major wow in this section. In the quieter second subject, Huff gets a full tone on very quiet playing. Um, I'm enjoying this. It's like he, it's like I heard it for the first time. I first heard this work when I was in my 20s. This is a huge virtuosic movement clocking in at 13 minutes with big romantic flourishes and ruminating melodic material. 
Um, putting this across is about keeping a sense of the form, and Huff does this perfectly. I found the whole thing compelling. He also gets an edgy, loud bass sound when he needs it. Um, Huff keeps a sense of the form even as he manipulates the rhythm via rubato and other stretching and pulling techniques. Beautifully balanced. This is really something to hear. Um, highly recommended there. Second movement. Uh, Messig Durchaus Energisch. Moderate, but with energy. Um, this is the middle movement. Clara, Sch Clara Schumann, Robert's wife, reportedly loved this march movement with its fanfare-like themes. Uh, Robert and Clara wrote a lot um, to each other and about each other in their various diaries, which we have um, access to these days. Um, oh, by the <laughs> way, if you ever wonder, Clara Schumann, one of the great uh, piano um, um, uh, soloists of... Uh, the 19th century, by the way. Um, if you're ever wondering, if you're ever wondering what Clara Schumann was like in bed, <laughs> you can find out because Robert Schumann wrote about it in his diaries. Boy, the things these people, um, you know, gave to posterity. Anyway, this movement is. Uh, uh, I with... just uh, hold on. I have yeah. to have another drink after that. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And I've erased that image from my mind. Now that you erased it, Clara Schumann was kind of a hottie, though. I think oh, really? she was kind of, yeah. Oh, well, let me see. It depends on which picture you find. Find those diaries at. on Amazon. Let me see. Yeah. Yeah. She was beautiful. She was a great pianist. Jeez. She inspired Brahms, you know. I don't know. Anything you want to say about that? There was a lot of stuff going on back then. Yeah. There was. Oh, boy. Yeah. They, they let it all hang out. Okay, this piece is played with, this movement is played with dignity and presence here. Uh, it's all very extrovert and loud. There's a contrasting middle section that presents a more intimate profile at times. Mm. And the sudden speeding up of the melodic line, it sounds teasing and playful. I guess that's what Clara Schumann liked about it, kind of the whole, that whole bit. Can you imagine that? Your husband's he's writing this music and you're playing it. And you kind of understand the emotion. You're putting that across to an audience. It sounds really, it feels really naughty in a way. I don't know. Anyway, the work is in ternary form. The opening material returns. Uh, excellent speeding up on the coda to end the movement in an exciting way. Third movement, langsam getragen, durchweg leis zu halten. You know, I can pronounce German better than that. When I haven't had a glass of whiskey beforehand. You need, you need schnapps. I need schnapps for that, maybe. Okay. Solemn and slow to be played quietly throughout. Um, a writer... I, I once read about this piece, and this movement was associated uh, by one writer I read, um, and especially the opening part, with uh, the opening shimmering uh, arpeggiated material um, with a phenomenon known as Fata Morgana. That's a, a Fata Morgana is a mirage in which ghostly images appear above the sea's horizon. For example, there'd be a ship on the sea's horizon. And it's there, there are objects. You can see examples of this on Wikipedia if you look up Fata Morgana, by the way. It's caused by layers of different temperatures of air. So like if you see there's a ship in the distance on the horizon, the ship will look like it's floating above the horizon. And... Um, this that's that's what the that is and he's sort of the opening is kind of like that misty sort of it's giving that misty sort of feeling of the air 
that causes that to happen. Uh, um, the Romantic people were fascinated, the 19th century were fascinated with phenomena of this kind. They kind of liked this whole idea of this dream world, this kind of imagine maybe not even imaginary to them but this kind of like this whole idea that there was this other place that they that they partially inhabited and they tried to put that in their music a lot this particular interpretation of this is a little unusual huff takes the quiet opening very fast yet is very generous with his well-judged rubato he integrates its speed into the overall tempo, uh, whereas most pianists purposely play this section at a slower tempo than the rest, presenting it as an interrupting presence. Um, so this is pretty interesting. Um, I like the approach. Um, I, I'm just so used to hearing it the other way. Um, Huff speed gives the movement a magical feeling with its soft volume. The movement builds to a bit of passion towards the middle. Nice picking up of tempo to add anticipation to the quiet ending this is an odd piece it ends on a quiet reassuring tonic chord repeated three times this piece is in three movements and it goes fast fast slow now that's not normal news usually it's sandwich like it's fast slow fast right mm-hmm. but it's like we're getting the meat at the uh, end okay um this is a beautiful recording and fantastic playing by huff Really definitive. Like you can't really call any recording of Schumann definitive, but this is one that is for the ages. I think it must be heard, and it'll be uh, it'll be listened to as one of the great Schumann recordings. I believe definitely worth a listen. He really pulls out all the contrasts uh, that are implied, you know, in in Schumann's music. I think, yeah. And, uh, yeah, takes you on an emotional roller coaster. It must be draining to play the music like this. And as you say, the constant thing is draining stuff. to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> say that. But the, the the thing that pulls you sort of through it is the rubato nature of most of these works where Yeah, you know, he's, he's so good at it. Yeah, too. he's Boy. and he just knows how to to push and pull at the right parts uh in there. And um yeah, it it actually wears you out to listen to it. You might want to take a break between the works on here. Uh, and they're because, two very big works yeah, the, on this yeah. album. Um, but it, with everything that he records, uh, extremely well done. And as you said, this recording, uh, in contrast to the one we did in our first episode, sonically is much more rewarding and sounds yeah, I really so great. Yeah. Um, it just captures whatever whatever distance it's it's certainly closer mic'd uh, but not right. too closely mic'd it's just right for mm. you know the full uh resonance and the dynamics that he's uh, focusing on in these works and so sonically it's a real treat too so yeah another masterful performance by stephen huff yes we'll be hearing more about him in the future because i really love this pianist a lot and i recommend you all yeah, Just again, this one's on catalog. Really, <laughs> this one's on Hyperion, so right. not available on streaming. Um, you can check out the samples on their site. The links are in the description. But yeah, worth buying though. Just you know, go for it. Buy it. Buy yourself a Christmas trust. Yeah, this will be a big present for you. All right, and there it is. I'm hanging up my uh, classical music uh, new albums for the year. Although there, there's still more to come right. next year. <laughs> In well, 2022. In the jazz room, 
I guess, well, since we got rid of all of our Christmas selections last week, uh, you know, Christmas, you would be thinking, let's go for a sleigh ride. Right. But we're not going to do that. We're going to oh, ride the train. We did that last week. Oh, we're riding the train. Ah, yes. We're going to ride the train. And yeah. um, What train are we riding, Russ? That's going to be the coal train. Oh, yeah. The John Coal train. Um, train. Now, as you know, if you've been listening to us, we focus on our recent releases on the Adult Music Podcast. And uh, if you hear John Coltrane, uh, any jazz fans says, well, no, John Coltrane, who was born in 1926, uh, died in 1967, uh, actually, uh, before his 41st birthday. So he was only 40 years old. Um, but John Coltrane is you know, one of, if not the greatest uh, geniuses of modern jazz uh, who left you know, probably the greatest imprint on saxophone, uh, tenor saxophone, soprano saxophone, saxophone in general, but also on the direction of jazz music. Uh, in his uh, career, he started in arguably, I guess, in the bebop era, uh, through post-bop, uh, then he was there in the modal exploration of music with Miles Davis, and then uh, into the avant-garde and free jazz uh, in his later years. Really, his, uh, I guess, you know, push of individualism, you could put from 1957 to 1967, in 10 years, he did so much and transformed the music in so many ways that, uh, you know, people have been unpacking and trying to figure out what he's done ever since then. And certainly uh, the saxophone players after him, you know, many great players made whole careers just focusing on, you know, a small slice of what John Coltrane did uh, in in his career. Uh, there's so much that uh, he worked through. Um, you know, he was working out new discoveries and harmonic possibilities in music, while at the same time, you know, being on his own kind of spiritual quest as his music uh, pushed towards uh, kind of spiritual influences too. And although some of the music that he recorded at the end of uh, his life is rather difficult uh, and, you know, really pushing the uh, concepts of jazz, even, you know, even today uh, in free jazz, uh, there's a versatility to his uh, music too, because he also recorded some albums that uh, anyone would enjoy who has even, you know, a passing interest in jazz. His ballads album is really beautiful. Uh, he recorded an album with an, maybe you would think is an unlikely collaboration, but with Duke Ellington. It's uh, hmm. a really great recording and uh, a fabulous recording uh, that's extremely beautiful with the vocalist uh, Johnny Hartman, uh, just John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman. That's a, a wonderful recording. Uh, along the way, uh, while he was, you know, pushing out all of these real, you know, frontier pushing uh, kind of developments in jazz. But 
uh, tonight, we want to look at uh, not those kind of things or, or John Coltrane's recordings on his own, because uh, those all happened, uh, you know, before I was More born. 50 years yeah. ago. Yeah, right. And, uh, what, what's really hard to wrap it, your head it's around. It's really weird to think this was this was like kind of taking over the world. And yet you and I were born into, well, I, I think he was still around when I was born. I was born in 1965. Okay, yeah. Oh, he died in 63. I don't 67, remember. 67, yeah. 67. So, well, yeah. I was too young to know. But the thing is... We, we were born into this world where that music already existed. And that's sort of a strange thing to think about yeah. because it just kind of, for the people who were there at the time, it just kind of wasn't there. And then it was there and the whole world changed, you know? Now, the hard thing for me to wrap my head around too is mm -hmm. uh, contemporary of John Coltrane, a, a little bit younger, so born in 1930, but who influenced John Coltrane and then Coltrane influenced him as well as Sonny Rollins. Oh, yeah. And Sonny Rollins is still alive. <laughs> He's yeah. uh, retired from performing in the past few years. But uh, to think that Coltrane left us so early and then uh, Sonny Rollins is still around, it's really sort of a a mind a mind uh, boggling kind of time uh, type of thing. But anyway, as I was saying, we're not listening to Coltrane music to Coltrane's performing today. We're, the focus is going to be on his compositions because he left behind on his musical journey of exploration, lots of great compositions that get recorded here and there, but not really focused on uh, to a, a great uh, degree in, you know, in sort of a collab, a sort of um, uh, one collaboration or recording. But since the fall, there's been a bunch of these that have come out. Uh, the last one we'll talk about was the first one that showed up on my list, and I was going to include it on a sort of saxophone release uh, special episode. So I've been, you know, just holding it on my list. And then these two other ones came up, uh, Coltrane, and then another Coltrane uh, just this month. And I thought, well, we've got three uh, new recordings of Coltrane compositions. And so that has to be an episode uh, all on its own. So tonight we're going to ride the train. And yeah. along the ride, you're going to get a variety of uh, ensembles and uh, performers, yet not well-known and then very well-known, and a nice tribute uh, in there as well. So the first one, uh, we're going to start out with the most uh, paired-back uh, performance and also a, a name you probably um, don't know, uh, an up-and-coming uh, performer. This is uh, the drummer, Vinny Sparaza, uh, from Utica, New York. <laughs> hey, and, uh, <laughs> known for, among other things, and I actually have this, this uh, my, my uncle had this, it was a... Uh, a sort of bar <laughs> clock kind of thing. Of if you think, if you if you're thinking, what good can ever come from Utica, New York? What? Well, just think. Just remember, Jesus came from Nazareth. That's right. And it, I'll tell you what wasn't good, and that was Utica Club. <laughs> <It was laughs> this horrendous beer that uh, yeah, I have. Maybe it was good at one time. I don't know. But anyway, I have this uh, clock that was my uncle's. It was Utica Club. Uh, so anyway, he's from uh, upstate New York. And uh, now he's based in uh, Brooklyn, playing on the New York City scene. And this is his uh, recent release called Play John Coltrane on the Fresh I, Sound New Talent label. I just want to say, I'm from, I was born in Brooklyn, and 
there wasn't much that was really good about Brooklyn at the time. It was a cool place, but now it seems like to be this really happening place to be. It's like wow. there's a lot of good talent there. There always has been, really, but it always went somewhere else, I guess. Yeah. It's going back to Brooklyn. Back to yeah. Brooklyn. Back to uh, Brooklyn. From Utica. Anyway, uh, and so this is a jazz trio. And uh, Sparaza on drums. On piano, Jacob Sachs, uh, a player who's been around a while. And uh, this recording really turned me on to his playing. And yeah. on, on uh, bass, we've got uh, Masa Kamaguchi, very Japanese-sounding name. I don't know his background, if he's... Uh, been in the U.S. for a long time or not. Um, anyway, uh, going through these recordings, I wanted to find the provenance of all these rec- all these Coltrane tunes uh, because you know Coltrane's style and approach changed uh, over his career. So I was interested to uh, look these up, and I tried to also put the uh, releases in order of sort of development as much as possible. So. Uh, this uh, recording starts out with a tune called Big Nick, which yeah. is a catchy tune by Coltrane. It was composed in 1962, um, and he did uh, initially record it with his own group in that year. But the more famous version is with Duke Ellington on Duke Ellington and John Coltrane. Uh, and this tune is uh, one they think may have been inspired by a classical piano piece by Polanc. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, uh, you'll have to listen to it and check I, it I out. I didn't yourself. pick that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. Do you, know what uh, piece it, do you know what piece it is? I'm not sure. No. Oh, I just okay. read that mm. uh, on uh, analysis of the piece. <laughs> it could so, be anything. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Because I know a little, I've <laughs> heard a lot, Polk, there are but a lot I don't of know his music so much, right? Uh, anyway, mm. um, this one uh, really high. All this whole album really highlights sax uh, piano playing. Uh, it's a really nice uh, touch. And it shows a light touch here with a swing on the melody. Uh, he, he builds it up to a big uh, dissonant kind of chord. A solo take, and this shows his style. There's a lot of rhythmic freedom in his uh, playing uh, when he solos. Uh, he's playing around whatever the drums are doing, but he always holds it together very well. Uh, he takes some harmonic di- diversions on this one, and he's uh, graceful. Uh, Kamaguchi gets a bass solo on this one. And then uh, Sex trades fours with Sparaza, uh, and he shows uh, the first example of his uh, tasty drumming. Uh, he's a uh, very much a uh, drummer who's like into tone and texture. Uh, yeah. And uh, so this is a really uh, relaxed and tasteful take of this tune to get things started. Yeah, be- uh, before we before we go on, I just want to point out uh, the pianist's name is Jacob Sachs, S-A-C-K-S. Now, that sounds like Sax, S-A-X, which was Coltrane's instrument. Yeah. And I don't want to get us confused between this. There is no saxophone on this recording. It's all piano bass. It's a, it's a piano trio, basically. It's piano bass and right. drums. Yeah, yeah, so let's let's get that clear. There's no okay. sax, and the guy named Sax doesn't play sax. He plays piano. Yeah, okay. Who's so on when first, we say the word right? sax, we mean the pianist. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the second tune is, uh, uh, if you're familiar with Coltrane, you probably know this one. Saida's Song Flute from Giant Steps, one of his mm. uh, breakthrough albums, uh, 1960. Uh, the famous offbeat riff and melody is uh, that you're used to hearing on saxophone is handled on piano by sax. By Jacob who's on second. <laughs> I don't who's know. On second? I don't know. I don't know who's on bass. Yeah. <laughs> 
So anyway, it works into a fast swing. Uh, and, I don't know uh, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and in Sax's piano solo, he takes uh, takes pieces of the melody apart really well. Um, uh, there's a nice accented accompaniment along uh, with his solo ideas uh, in the left hand uh, and also on the chords as well. And then he trades again with uh, Speraza on this one. Uh, the third track, also from Giant Steps, uh, Naima. And uh, done slow and sparse like the original, uh, but starting right in with bass improvisations uh, from Kamaguchi. So it's a little bit of uh, unexpected uh, beginning rather than going through the um, melody. Uh, Sex's piano solo has lines uh, that run and then end in a rocking rhythm that is kind of uh, interesting. Uh, so somewhat like the original in character, but uh, changing up the format. Uh, track four is called Satellite, and this is from the 1964 album Coltrane's Sound. And uh, this is um, a contrafact of How High the Moon, a jazz standard. You may pick up snippets of that, but this is one of uh, Coltrane's sort of experiments in harmonies. You could call it like a giant stepped on version of How High the Moon, <laughs> because he uh, he's working on how to uh, uh, pull apart the harmonies here. Um, however, uh, Sachs does some interesting things here. He takes, I believe, the idea of satellite as in, you know, a man-made kind of uh, orbiting thing. And he comes up with these kind of interstellar uh, interference sonic sounds. So he has these <laughs> intervals that are bouncing all over the place in this tune. Uh, and he starts that out uh, with uh, the bass intro. He brings it the intro tones back to spice up the melody throughout his solo. Uh, and sometimes his hands seem to be doing like seemingly impossible, different things. Like they're operated by, you know, a different, uh, a different person altogether. Uh, Kamaguchi gets a kind of exploratory solo here. And uh, Sparazza also gets some skin time on this one. So I think it's sort of, a, I mean, the, the tune was originally a contrafact. A contrafact means a reworking or taking the harmonic progressions of one tune and writing a new melody over it, whereas Coltrane is also reworking the harmony here. So it doesn't bear like a Mac lot of the holes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, track five is uh, Lonnie's Lament. And this is from the 1964 Coltrane release Crescent and also uh, a later... Uh, 1977 release of an earlier recording than that uh, in 1963 on an album called Afro Blue Impressions. After Coltrane passed away, a lot of his older music was being re-released re in different combinations, and it gets a little bit confusing. Um, anyway, this one has a free-form bass intro. Uh, sax comes in on piano, uh, rubato, Spraz adds nice light touches uh, before getting a soft solo of his own. Uh, this one shows again, he's a real subtle uh, drummer. He doesn't overpower his bandmates. Uh, bass and drums return for a bit, and then uh, Sparaza gets more time, and he builds it up uh, the second time around more to the close. Uh, track six is called uh, 26 Two. Uh, this is a, 
a tune. Uh, it was uh, recorded by Coltrane in 1960, but released 10 years later uh, on an album on Atlantic Records, uh, The Coltrane Legacy. And uh, this one had uh, McCoy Tyner on piano, Elvin Jones on drums. Uh, the composition itself is another contrafact. It's a reworking of Charlie Parker's confirmation. Um, so the original chord, train, uh, chord changes are altered by uh, Coltrane in something that sort of came to be known as Coltrane changes. And it revolves around um, sort of third related uh, chord movements rather than the original. So this is sort of another uh, kind of uh, harmonic problem that he was working out uh, here. Um, do, you, do you know what the title refers to? Uh, that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Don't know either. Kind of <laughs> it could just be a date as far as I know. Uh, you know, Because he did oh. record some things that were untitled. Um, but Anyone knows, let us know. Yeah, you, you can, can send uh, us an email. Check it okay. out and uh, see what you think of this one. Uh, but everyone knows, all jazz fans will know Confirmation, uh, the Charlie Parker tune. Uh, so you can probably follow the harmony, harmony on this one. Uh, track seven, we go back to Giant Steps, Cousin Mary. Uh, this is a blues kind of... Uh, Coltrane Blues from that album. Uh, they play the melody kind of straight, uh, but with dense chords, uh, sax solos on piano with uh, lots of spaces between his phrases. He works up to some runs with agility. Uh, he sometimes shifts out of the rhythm and then back in without uh, seeming to be uh, uncomfortable at all. Uh, Kamaguchi takes a bass solo uh, that also uses a lot of space for anticipation. And then uh, sax on the piano and uh, Sparaza trade choruses a few times. And uh, sax explores a bit more, but Sparaza keeps it tight and light. Track eight is called Central Park West. Uh, this is from 1964's uh, Coltrane's Sound Album. The piano and bass start out this ballad tune. Sparaza joins in lightly. It's very pretty. Uh, but Sex finds interesting intervals and exciting runs to try out in his solo. Kamaguchi has a nice melodic solo on this one. He gets up in the upper register, but his sound stays warm and he has very clear attacks. I actually said this one has a very pretty end of the day, weary New York vibe to mm. it. And I got, yeah. I thought it was thinking like a rainy day in the park yeah, or something. It. It, it's yeah. very atmospheric. Uh, right. uh, uh one of Coltrane's compositions. I like the way he's the whole upper end of the piano here too. I mean, yeah. It was very nice. He's an intriguing piano player. He has a, mm. his own individualistic style that I really like. Uh, nine is Bessie's Blues. This is uh, also on 1964's Crescent, but it shows up on a lot of his later recordings as well. It's a medium fast swinging blues. Uh, sax plays the piano, uh, plays the melody on piano rather lightly. His solo works out sort of interesting harmonic and rhythmic problems that he seems to pose to himself and then answer mm -hmm. within a really narrow range of the piano before he expands outward. So it's sort of like he starts working out these equations in the middle of the keyboard and then, you know, searches for extrapolations of them. Uh, then Sparaza and Kamaguchi trade off choruses, uh, keep it kind of subtle. Then we end up with uh, track 10, After the Rain. Uh, this is, this one's um, 
on a couple different albums, 1963, uh, to the beat of a different drum and also on the Impressions album. This one starts with a bass intro, some cymbal rolls. Sax comes in gently on piano. Kamaguchi fills in the chord gaps. It's very slow and pretty. Sax focuses on textures on the piano, pretty cascades of notes. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, nice subtle performance. I like this recording a lot. Asparaz is the leader, but he's extremely subtle drummer. He never overpowers his bandmates. So he's really like an ideal trio drummer. Uh, he, he keeps, you know, awesome time, but he does it in a relaxed nature. So he doesn't intrude on what else is, whatever else is going on. And his drums sound great. They have great texture and tone. So I hope we hear uh, more of what he's doing. Uh, and the recording is a nice showcase for Sax's piano work. He has a really nice touch and a unique rhythmic style. Uh, and the trio plays well together. Kamaguchi fits in perfectly with them, and he has a nice bass sound and concept that works. So uh, if you haven't heard of uh, Vinny Sparazza, check it out. Yeah. yeah, I want to say this album, it, it was kind of an interesting take on Coltrane's music because there's no saxophone on it exactly I, right. I think i've never heard any i i think i've ever heard these tunes played right. without a saxophone before so it was it was a bit of a yeah it was a bit of a surprise unique take it was interesting to hear them play yeah, that's like what i mean this. Yeah. i thought it's interesting because it's focusing on coltrane as a composer right. rather than as a monolithic you know sax sax player i, th- I think more people people should try this i'm kind of interested in hearing these how these compositions would translate to different ensembles that, that don't have a saxophone. <laughs> Definitely agree. Yeah. Um, mm. Now we'll get another take on these for the second selection, an album that just came out this month. Uh, to uh, another jazz musician who's uh, gone to the great beyond, uh, Harold yeah, Mayburn. Sad. Yeah, uh, great I really piano enjoyed player. The, his playing here. Came yeah. up from the late 60s through the 70s up till today. Um, kind of hard bop, a little soul jazz uh, resume. And this is called Mayburn Plays Coltrane on Smoke Sessions Records. But it's not just Mayburn here. You're going to get the greatest of all the Smoke Sessions guys, including uh, John Weber on bass, uh, the great Joe Farnsworth on drums, who we featured as uh, uh, new release a couple weeks ago. Uh, Vincent Herring, we featured his recent release also on the podcast on alto sax. Um, the amazing Eric Alexander on tenor sax, uh, who, like you say, uh, you're going to do Coltrane works and you're the tenor sax player. Uh, you better have taken your Coltrane pills because everyone's going to listen to what you do. Fortunately, Eric, Eric Alexander has all of his vitamins uh, ready for this one. And uh, we also get uh, the great modern uh, trombonist, Steve Davis, uh, who I saw in uh, Osaka some years, many years back, actually. It was with uh, the yeah, new years com- just keep going. <laughs> the new composer's octet, yeah, with uh, Freddie Hubbard. And uh, I got to meet and talk to Freddie Hubbard that day uh, with uh, Xavier Davis, too. I mentioned that in a previous episode, but Steve Davis was there that night, too. And this is a live recording at Smokes, and it's really grooving. So uh, this this is um, uh, really happening uh, 
kind of groovy selection of Coltrane tunes, and it just fits the style of these uh, smoke players. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, mm. So here we start out with uh, the homie dance from uh, 1961 uh, Ole Coltrane uh, album. Uh, this is one of Coltrane's various uh, harmonically different blues tunes. I mean, whenever Coltrane would take a blues, there's always you know some something new uh, harmonically in it. Uh, Mayburn gives out the chords for a chorus uh, before the horns jump in and play the melody. Uh, Steve Davis solos first on this one. Uh, he's one of the you know top New York trombone players today. He's relaxed, but he finds some cool harmonic spots in the solo. Yeah, so much so that Mayburn gives him a enthusiastic grunt <laughs> mid solo, <laughs> which uh, shows his approval. Ugh, you know, and uh, so that's cool. Uh, Fitz and Herring's up next. He has his usual fire burning on an intense solo. Whenever you hear him, he sounds like a stick of dynamite. Uh, his tone is always just searing and uh, ready to explode with some new idea. And uh, then. Alexander here, and uh, he shows off some of his Coltrane vitamins with some reverential <laughs> licks. Um, and he, the guy is a real awesome uh, tenor player, uh, capable of anything. And then um, Mayburn gets his own solo. He really digs in with chords. Mayburn's a, a, a player who plays a lot of chords, even when he's playing yeah. a solo. And, you know, so he digs in with really thick chords always well accented uh, and uh, you get some rolls in there too. Uh, but he leaves most of the highlight to uh, the horn players here, uh, but a nice kind of uh, jammy beginning here. Then we go I'll, next. I'll, I want to mention, by the way, May Mayburn is 82 years old on this album. Amazing. Yeah. And he takes some really great runs. Because mm. usually your technique is kind of falling apart by this age, but he's still. He's spot he's, on. He, He's got a lot of good stuff, yeah. So we should say this album was just released this month, but it was recorded in 2019, which yeah, is when Mayburn, Mayburn passed died. away in September. Yeah. So it was within you know some months of his passing, and he still sounds on uh, top of his game here. Um, yeah, as does the album. This is a fantastic sounding yeah. album too. You know, really clear. Yeah, these smoke guys, yeah. you know. Uh, they were learning on the fly how to record um, music uh, because neither one of them came from a, uh, you know, a music and recording background. They were just um, music fans who, from the story I read, uh, got their recording equipment and training based on input from the musicians. And it's worked out really well because both uh, using the club as a studio and the live sessions, they all always sound great. Uh, and what they have, uh, their recordings re retain or recover the interactiveness and the spatial sounds that have been lost on a lot of these modern sort of uh, hermetically sealed, you know, <laughs> recordings where all the players are isolated and everything is overdubbed and you lose all the spatial dynamics, but the sound, the smoke recordings, either live or the ones they do as studio dates always have that kind of spark and naturalness to them. And this one is no exception and, and it's live. You can hear the crowd on it, but uh, mm. you know, sometimes when you hear a live album, uh, okay, the, the players are inspired, but you lose something in the sonics. Not the case here. Hmm. Uh, it sounds great, and you have the energy. Uh, 
So next we get uh, another blues, hmm. Blue Train uh, from 1958, Blue Train. Uh, so we are in the you know earlier periods of uh, Coltrane here still. Uh, you can check out the different harmonization of the melody on the repeat, which is nice because they've got all the horns there to do that. Uh, Alexander's up for the solo first. He keeps it bluesy. Uh, Davis on trombone is next. He's bluesy too, but he works things in and out of the chords. Uh, again, to Mayburn's approval uh, with uh, vocalized uh, kind of grunting there. Uh, the horns join <laughs> in back in the backing over Davis's solo, which is cool. Uh, add some fuel to the fire. Uh, Herring gets screaming on this one. Uh, he's always got that burning intensity. Uh, but a lot of people say he sort of uh, incorporates a lot of Cannonball Adderley's uh, bluesy approach uh, in a, as uh, a modern player. And I, I think he does. I, and he always sounds intense. Uh, Mayburn, in contrast, rather than being bluesy, he sounds very happy with a melodic mm. uh, solo here. And he works into some really chiming melodic chords. Uh, and then Weber gets a rhythmic bass solo before they go back to the head. Sounds like they're all having a great time on this tune. Another thing I want to mention, by the way, about Mayburn's playing is he doesn't just comp when the other um, musicians are soloing. He'll He's listening, and right. he'll indicate that by playing bits of what they've just played. Like, he'll echo yeah. them in the piano. It's yeah. really fantastic. It's it's it. I imagine it would very sound really encouraging to the other players as well. You yeah. Know? He's a great side yeah. man. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Even though he's the leader here, but he's interacting with the soloists. Uh, track three, Impressions. Uh, this is first recorded, I believe, 1961 uh, Transcendence. Uh, trend, oh, I'm sorry, Transcendence uh, album. <laughs> there we go. And But, of course, also on the 1963 impressions recording uh mayburn goes around the up-tempo chords first uh before the horns join in on the melody and the backing lines uh herring solos here again lots of fire and direction uh in his sound uh davis on trombone a lot of agility in his solo here and uh alexander again shows a lot of coltrane influence in his solo uh, he works through phrases that weave through the harmonies. It must be when you're playing all Coltrane <laughs> tones and you're the tenor <laughs> tenor player, you must feel some, you know, responsibility to uh, show that, you know, you've uh, learned the lessons of uh, your mentor. And he certainly has. Uh, Mayburn plays a real rhythmic solo with punchy chords alongside his melodies here. And then the horns trade off phrases with uh, the great Joe Farnsworth on drums uh, another nice uh, performance. Track four, Dear Lord. This one, uh, 1963, first recorded on to the beat of a different drum uh, and also uh, Transition, which was recorded in June of 65, but released after Coltrane's death in 1970. Uh, this one, uh, only sax for the horns, uh, and it starts with a pretty piano intro by Mayburn. Uh, he actually quotes Bach here, uh, Jesu Joy of Man's <laughs> Desiring. Then yeah. he turns it into a gospel feel, which is really cool. Uh, Alexander carries uh, the uh, longing melody, and then uh, Farnsworth pushes it along with nice uh, symbol work. Uh, Mayburn's solo here has some faster lines in his right hand, 
kind of compared to the earlier solos where he's doing mostly chord things. And then he starts uh, some rhythmic and rich kind of major seven chords. And then uh, Alexander's solo matches the uplifting mood set by Mayburn's groove. Uh, so a nice kind of different feel on this one. And I think the audience was really uplifted by this yeah, because they, they like applaud this. at the end. Right. <laughs> this is the first time we hear them, really. And then we're going to end up with not a Coltrane composition, but a tune that he made his own uh, from The Sound of Music, the Rodgers and Hammerstein's tune, My Favorite Things. So Coltrane kind of had a jazz hit with this uh, on his 1961 My Favorite Things. This sort of hit the you know, cool jazz scene at the time and college students were into it and uh, whatnot. Um, anyway, it gets a uh, an extended uh, piano opening. And uh, again, as Mayburn mixed uh, Bach uh, in his uh, the previous tune, here he mixes uh, hints at the My Favorite Things uh, melody with a tune called Aino Corrida, uh, which yeah. was uh, arranged uh, and had a, a hit with by Quincy Jones in 1981 or so. I forget who the singer on the recording was, but um, I should say that um, Aino Corrida was... Uh, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. Uh, it was the title um, in Japanese of a film which got the English title of In the Realm of the Senses. Yeah. Does that ring, ring any bells, uh, listeners in Japan or otherwise? Uh, well, I don't know about uh, in Japan, but in like in the in the West, it's, it's yeah. become quite a... Well, uh, this film... Kind uh, of notorious actually, film, let's say. It, it, it was notorious because in order to get around the uh, Japanese censors... Uh, this film would never be released for general it, viewing it, in it's Japan. It's still never been released yeah. for general viewing It actually Japan. was released as a French film. Uh, yeah. And uh, let's just say that um, if, if we want to say uh, adult music, this is certainly an adult movie. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's an X-rated movie, basically. It's an X-rated movie. The, the, right. the director wanted to make an artistic X-rated movie. Right. And the reason why it was never released in Japan didn't have anything to do with the sexuality of the movie. It had more to do with the the anti-war elements of the movie, mm. the anti-military elements of the movie. Because the main character, the, the male lead, is, is sort of um, t devoted to the uh, the um, the uh, life of the sensuality rather than the life of warfare. And right. clean, you know, so there's, there's a political statement being made in this movie as well as it being very, uh, oh, X-rated, X-rated, shall we say? That's right. <laughs> uh, anyway, the tune, the tune for based, I don't know what the connection of the tune to the movie title was. The tune was written actually by uh, uh, Englishman uh, Chaz Jenkins. Uh, I know Corita, by the way, means loves bullfight. Right, loves bullfight, <laughs> and so this. Chaz Jenkel, English singer and instrumentalist, wrote this tune based, the title based on the movie, The Realm of the Senses, original Japanese title. And then the song was uh, recorded by Quincy Jones and became a top hit. And probably, I don't know if anyone put together all of those uh, those things and somehow Bayburn finds that to mine into my favorite things. Maybe you like the movie a lot. I don't know. <laughs> 
could be. That is really complicated. Yes. <laughs> but we're all adults here, so. Yes, uh, we are. Anyway. Well, uh, we he, better be because we're listening to the Adult Music Podcast. Yeah, that's right. He takes uh, that and builds it into a big harmonic finish, and then he launches into the menacing chord intro uh, for my favorite things, uh, putting the melody in there. Finally, he plays around with it a few times with some embellishments, improvisations, before Herring comes in for an alto solo, um, who builds uh, tension with really long yearning notes. Uh, Alexander comes in. Uh, on the major section uh, there of the melody, and he works in and out of the chords and to the extreme registers of his horn, uh, sounding very Coltrane-inspired. Everyone drops out for a Weber bass solo that includes some harmonics and glissandos. Then Farnsworth gets some uh, more space uh, to show off his great technique. Uh, Mayburn and Weber join back in. The rhythm gets more funky. And Mayburn gets a new groove and a little bit more improvisations to a final unique ending of the tune. It's really nice. Uh, Then uh, we heard uh, Naima on the previous recording done uh, rather in the style of Coltrane. They give us a different take here. It's an upbeat version of the tune, which I've never heard before. Yeah, this is really unusual. Coltrane's original version is very, very slow. But here it's really upbeat. Uh, Mayburn comes out with a happy beat and Farnsworth makes it into a samba. Uh, so uh, hmm. unexpected. Uh, Herring carries the melody on the tune. Uh, the arranged horn line harmonies are great. Uh, and then Herring uh, solos first, his solo is peppered with sort of 16th note lines and searing tone. Uh, Mayburn grunts approval at Davis's smooth solo again, uh, in contrast to Herring's uh, fast lines and Mayburn himself has a very percussive solo here uh some dancing right hand figures uh, Alexander gets a solo too uh however they bring the ending down uh slow like the original tune uh but with some nice horn harmonies uh added to it uh, so an interesting arrangement of this uh, well-known Coltrane tune and we end with uh track seven straight street from the 1957 uh, album is earlier Coltrane's original uh, period, just the Coltrane album. Uh, it's a nice horn arrangement on the melody. Uh, get some stop time in there. Farnsworth makes the most of the rhythm style switches in the tune. Herring gets another piercing solo. Davis swings hard on his solo. Uh, Alexander's in a smoother mood on this one. And uh, Mayburn is animated and bouncy. Uh, the horns come back with some descending lines uh, that trade off with some more solo space for Farnsworth before they head back to the melody. So it's another great uh, smoke session live date, passionate performances, uh, some unique arrangements of Coltrane's tunes, all inspired well. Uh, Mayburn was a classy player with a unique interactive style. And uh, this is a good uh, date to remember his uh, great playing with. Fun performance. I loved it too. This is it was really great, fantastic recording. Great, yeah. You know, I, I, even when the other solos were playing to tell the truth, I was I was kind of listening to Mayburn. He was just so intriguing throughout. Yeah. I liked him a lot. Yeah, he yeah, didn't lose I, his touch near the end, yeah, at all. I'm just sorry I learned about him so late. You know, I right. wish I had known him like throughout my 20s and 30s as well. Yeah, very enjoyable uh, piano player and great performance. 
Well, and to wrap things up, this album actually came out uh, first among these three, uh, and it came out in September. And I was going to put this one with some other sax recordings, but uh, here I included it with all these culturing things. And I saved it for last because uh, I think this one is, uh, well... (laughs) <laughs> for several rough. reasons it was kind of rough going really <laughs> well i mean that's that's the nature of the nature uh, of this music this, yeah this music uh, this is david liebman uh david liebman's expansions that's a group he works with and it's uh, selflessness the music of john coltrane it's on uh, dot time records and mm. um what i should say why it's it's last uh because it focuses more on the later music of Coltrane because that's uh, the influence on David Liebman. So David Liebman is a, you know, um, monster saxophone player who who grew out of the, you know, the uh, first emulation of uh, John Coltrane's music and inspiration. He played with Miles Davis and has been, uh, you know, one of the leading uh, figures in saxophone. Uh, now, to make it clear, if you don't know Dave Liebman, he is not an, an emulator or imitator of uh, John Coltrane. He has his own uh, unique and insta- instantly identifiable sound and style, uh, particularly on soprano saxophone, uh, which he uh, has played over his career. And on this album, he returns to focusing on almost exclusively. Um, but uh, as a sort of, uh, I don't want to say devotee, but uh, uh, someone clearly inspired uh, by Coltrane's music uh, as a springboard for uh, his career. Uh, he focuses mostly on you know the later period of uh, Coltrane and when Coltrane is uh, getting into more avant-garde things. And David Liebman is uh, very comfortable in a free jazz element uh, where a lot of his uh, recordings uh, focus on. And so uh, that's why I saved this one for last. Um, so we've got David Liebman on soprano sax. He also uh, pulls out a wooden flute for one track, yeah. which is pretty cool. Uh, interestingly, in this group, his expansions, he's got another sax player with him uh, who I didn't know much about, but is an awesome player on his own right. Uh, Matt Vashlishan, an alto sax player uh, who also plays flute and clarinet and uh, wind synth on here. On piano and other keyboards, we've got Bobby Avey and uh, bass, Tony Marino, and uh, drums and percussion, Alex Ritz. Um, We start out here with uh, a tune, Mr. Day. This is from 1962 recording, Coltrane Plays the Blues. Uh, The bass starts it out with the hesitant bass line from the original uh, little variation on that, but it retains the kind of nature of it. It's it's a Coltrane blues with altered harmonies. Ritz mixes up the complicated rhythms incredibly. This this guy's a really uh, skilled drummer uh, with what he can do with mixing up beats uh, behind the bass and through the tune and the whole album, really. Uh, The alto and soprano share the melody. Uh, Vashlishan is up first on alto. Uh, he works through all the harmonies with intensity, getting in some bluesy phrases. Uh, the groove changes up for Avi's solo on piano. 
Uh, and again, he's soloing over this really complex drumming from Ritz. Uh, <laughs> these guys are really good at holding things together over uh, complex rhythms. Uh, Liebman comes in smoothly, and then he takes off with one of his uh, trademark kind of flying lines. If you don't know his sound, it's instantly identifiable. Once you hear it, uh, you'll realize uh, what he does. He is, you know, I know you hate this uh term but the coltrane the sound, was, style was often called the sheets of sound the sheets of sound yeah that's one yeah. of those expressions i think we got to come up with something better yeah. to explain that um yeah whatever that idea is of of playing uh parts that you can hear sort of uh, vertically on a horizontal uh instrument that's limited right. to one tone at one tone at one time so how do you how do you explore harmony on an instrument that can only play one note at one time i think you know that that was the sort of challenge of John Coltrane's harmonic uh, journey. And Liebman is a, a player who has so much agility, uh, flexibility, uh, especially on soprano. And he gets these sounds. Sometimes it, you wonder, is it a note or is it only a sound or what is he doing? Uh, but <laughs> you'll get used to that sound yeah. uh, if you don't know his playing on this album. He can be so fluid, but it he gets... Some sounds are part squawk and part note. Right. Uh, he's all over the place, uh, taking your ears on a journey of harmony and melody all at the same time. Uh, and the bass takes us out after the melody repeat. Uh, so, I, I think I should mention this is this is not a laid back recording by any means. So mm-hmm. uh, you, you really want to be have your kind of Coltrane sort of. Um, head on when you're kind of listening oh, to yeah, this because yeah. it's going to make you fo- you're going to need to focus and concentrate on yeah. this it's 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 not easy music let's say what i i first came to know david it's liebman intellectually challenging um, there you although go. i mean he played with miles davis in a lot of davis's later sort of uh, you know more electronic type music and mm. um uh, but when i was uh listening to trumpet recordings when i was a teenager you know tom harrell was one of my uh Right, I remember you got a lot of CDs from you. I have everything Tom Harrow recorded. But uh, one of his uh, recordings, uh, uh, Dave Liebman's, I think it's a tune called Dream in June. And it's one of these, Tom Harrow writes compositions that are sort of like a problem that he has to solve. Um, It's a compositional problem that he's going to solve improvisationally on his trumpet. And David Liebman comes in and he, you know, he plays one of these solos from outer space. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and I remember looking at the album notes. I don't remember who wrote them, but the, the commenter described that as an artful strangulation of the soprano saxophone. <laughs> that always stuck in my head. You know, it's like he's destroying the instrument as he's playing it. And it sounds yeah. great at the same time. So, uh, yeah. you know, he, he, he's really uh, a singular type of approach to uh, playing this instrument. Um, two, Compassion. Uh, this is from 1965 recording, Meditations. Uh, so Lehman is going to get into more of Coltrane's later sort of spiritual kind of uh, works a lot uh, in here. So this gets a bass ostinato opening. It also has some synthy sounds that create a trance-like mood. Lehman comes in on soprano with a mysterious theme. Uh, Vashlashan is on a wind synth uh, electronic kind of a wind instrument here. Uh, and Liebman explores some modal ideas and uh, the overall effect of this one becomes kind of exploratory. Uh, mm. 
sort of spiritual quest kind of uh, feeling. Uh, track three, we get another version of My Favorite Things. Uh, piano intro here in the high register creates uh, an atmosphere before finding parts of the melody and then taking some rhythmic explorations. The bass and drums come in with the groove. Liebman and uh, Vashlesan trade off on the melody on soprano and alto before they join in together. Then Vashlesan is off on his own solo. He builds it nicely, swings hard through the fast phrases, finds some rhythmic riffs before coming back to the melody, passes the baton off to Liebman. And Liebman is really free flowing here, gets some really cool uh, rhythmic and melodic licks in between all of his uh, sort of kite flying on the soprano on this one. Uh, they come back to the melody but they make a rather unexpectedly slow and different ending to the tune. So make sure you listen all the way to the end. Uh, four, uh, Ole from Ole Coltrane again. Hmm. Uh, this one starts with a frame drum intro uh, that uh, the drummer plays. So uh, I guess the definition of a frame drum, it's, it's a very old drum from various cultures, but it's a drum where the, the width of the drum is, greater than the depth so you've got a big skin but kind of a, a shallow kind of drum so you can get a lot of different tonal uh possibilities it, it makes, out of it it makes a cool sound very cool yeah yeah and so you get this sort of uh ancient uh sort of uh you know could be from any culture kind of sound going on but this was this tune itself um is uh uh kind of a, a modal kind of working that Coltrane wrote uh, probably over a Spanish folk song, El Vito. So he was working with kind of Spanish modes when he composed this tune. And then Liebman comes in over the drum on a wooden flute and he's improvising over these modes. So it's a very kind of, you know, uh, modal uh, effect uh, that he's coming in on. And then, very cool. Uh, Vashelshan comes in and joins Liebman on clarinet. Uh, so you get this interesting blend of wood flute and clarinet. Uh, and then Liebman switches to soprano and they play the melody uh, together. Uh, so um, Avi is playing a kind of an electric piano sound behind the melody, but he switches to a distorted synth kind of tone for a solo here. So it gets kind of... Uh, like uh, electronic -y there. Uh, after another round of the melody, then Liebman solos a bit on soprano and uh, Vashelson on uh, clarinet. So you've got a kind of Spanish tinged modal kind of thing with some synthy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting mix of things going on here. Uh, the next track is Lazy Bird. This is from uh, Blue Train, 1958 too. It, the tune is thought to be uh, sort of a, uh, inspired by Tad Dameron's Lady Bird, but with uh, kind of uh, these uh, chord substitutions. Uh, it's it's kind of like these, what they call like a backdoor kind of uh, cadence progression, it's sort of using like tritone substitution things uh, to rework the harmonies of it. Um, and we're back to uh, alto and soprano on this one. The melody is played uh, over a really complex rhythm and bass line. Uh, after the melody, Avi's up first for piano solo. He starts it with rolling chords. Then he works through these really undulating lower chord things uh, into some more melodic ideas. And then Liebman gets a solo and uh, Vashlashan as well. 
Um, then we've got uh, track six, Peace on Earth, which I think was recorded uh, in the live in Japan concerts, 1966, and then re released on various um, recording issues after Coltrane died. This one has a really dreamy intro on soprano, lush piano and cymbals. Uh, uh, when the soul rubato melody starts, Vashosan joins uh, the soprano sax with flute. Uh, other than some trilling and a few improvised, like filling lines after the verse, it's played very straight, uh, like almost completely as composed, and they join together again for a pretty ending. Uh, so this is sort of into uh, Coltrane's kind of spiritual uh, type of composition period. Uh, track seven is One Up, One Down. This was recorded in 1963, but... Uh, never released until 2018 on the Lost Coltrane uh, album you may have called Both Directions at Once. Uh, I got this when it came out. It's an energetic tune. Uh, after the melody statement, Liebman gets a short improv spot uh, before the repeat. Then there's some uh, dark descending piano chords and uh, Ritz uh, is ready on the drums for an extended solo section. Liebman joins over the drums with one of his soprano strangulation solos from outer space. It's really cool to listen to. Uh, and then they are back uh, to the melody and uh, take it out. Uh, track eight, Selflessness, the title of this uh, uh, compilation here from 1968, uh, Selflessness featuring my favorite things. Also, uh, there was a 1965 recording Kuluse Mama. This was released in 2000. It's hard to keep track of when all these recordings were originally recorded and then finally released. Uh, this is a sort of a freeform spiritual style from Coltrane's later period. It's got a lush intro, uh, piano, soprano and alto trade lines and joined together. Uh, Ritz works up a complex beat added to by uh, Marino on bass. Uh, A.V. adds synthy sounds uh, on the keyboards in addition to the piano. The saxes trade solo segments before they join together uh, with more synthy sounds added. And then uh, Avi gets some contemplative space uh, on the keyboard uh, over Ritz's ever-changing beat. He works up the intensity with these huge chords, uh, faster lines before the saxes uh, return for a final melody statement. And the... Uh, Recording uh, kind of closes out with uh, Dear Lord, 1963, uh, on uh, both uh, To the Beat of a Different Drum album uh, and also Transition, which was recorded in 1965 and released uh, in 1970. Um, this is a, a kind of unique yeah. ending to the album. It starts yeah, with... We actually already heard this on Mayburn's album, but it's right. a really different sounding version. Completely different version yeah. of this. Uh, it has a bowed bass intro. Uh, Marino gets really low and very mm. resonant with uh, some open intervals on the bass. Then um, Liebman and Vashlishan join in very tenderly on a rubato melody. Vashlishan's on flute. Um, Marino continues the bowing through. Ritz adds tom and cymbal texture kind of fills in there. 
And it's played very straight and composed very serene, very different from the Mayburn version. Uh, so it's kind of a pretty ending to the album that's often exploratory, uh, maybe challenging to some listeners who don't listen to free jazz, but uh, I think it ends on kind of this spiritual note, uh, mm-hmm. which was also a hallmark of the search of Col- Coltrane was searching uh, harmonically and spiritually at the same time. And the, his music has a great depth. I think it's taken, you know, and you can still find a lot of things to explore after all these decades. Um, no, you, we always will. It's a, it's yeah. that kind of music. It's just going to always yeah. be sort of. And so I feel the, the first two albums are, you know, looking at uh, Coltrane as a composer and seeing what you can do with his tunes, even in a, you know, a modern context. And that, and that should be done more often not only with Coltrane, but a, a lot of the uh, sort of uh, originals penned by, you know, the great uh, jazz musicians themselves uh, from, you know, bebop, post-bop, and uh, further on uh, up to modern times. But, uh, of course, Liebman, as a, a saxophone player who uh, has studied and uh, built on the things that uh, Coltrane developed uh is I think is paying a deeper you know debt into the style and uh, sort of deeper meaning of Coltrane's music as he does on a lot of his recordings and so this is a fine tribute to uh, a certain spiritual nature and hence the selflessness uh, title uh, to that and you know um, Liebman is competent in all all styles but he's very uh, able to capitalize on the free style of jazz. You know, because he, he can launch into these sort of uh, explorations and he's not held back uh, by imagination or technique, especially on soprano sax. So interesting recording, I felt. Yeah, another thing that needs to be said about this recording is that it's just a fantastically clear recording. It's, yeah. The, the bass and drums are just you're right up front, very present. Everything is. It's, yeah. it's uh, a joy to listen to that way. Um, it's very demanding. I'm, I personally i've always been fascinated i'm always fascinated with spiritual quests in general so uh you know coltrane's you know quest for like right. from a love supreme on has always kind of intrigued me so i was really intrigued I mean, by this it's, it's not an easy listen it's though, deep I have to music say. i mean yeah. even yeah. He, he even you know some of his uh musical collaborators who worked with him in the previous periods sort of gave up <laughs> on yeah. that music because they thought they didn't have anything left to add with what he was doing in sort of the later right. period. And it's a real challenge. Uh, it's to funny because late, later musicians have based like their whole careers on it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, and, and, and still uh, people are still looking to it uh, uh, today. So, uh, but definitely uh, if you want a guide through that, Liebman is one of the, the ones who've dedicated, you know, uh, so much to that period so uh, yeah so a bit uh, demanding but highly rewarding if you do the work let's just say so if you want to ride the train instead of the sleigh this week hop on to these three recordings it's amazing they all came out with (laughs) you know that sleigh out of here yeah get that sleigh out of here they all came out since (laughs) september september to december three coltrane composition recordings you know i guess it's one of these morphic resonance type of things you know Hmm. Uh, someone gets an idea the vibrations spread across the universe and then people are tuned in and ride the train there you go not a bad way to uh end the uh the year of um talking about uh, new albums huh new albums 
old yeah. ideas, intriguing concepts. Indeed. And I, uh, a good year. Yeah, next 42 yeah. episodes. What's that? Six times four. We've got, well, we didn't do six for the first couple of but There were a few we did. Yeah, so, we did four last week to eight last week. I don't know. It's always kind of. 200 some, 230 plus albums. So we heard uh, around 230 albums, let's say. Yeah. It's going to be a lot to pick from the best stuff. Yeah, which we're going to do next week. So next yeah. week is going to be, there's not going to be any new music on next week's uh, podcast. We're going to talk about well, just the, the albums that really stood out for us this year. Yeah, we might find something that we missed or something to sneak in there too. So, but uh, yeah. it'll be largely so give that a listen. Yeah. A year in review. And uh, as we said, uh, Christmas is coming and I uh, will be glad to uh, get that over with once you open your <laughs> presents. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I, I like the days before. The thing I'm really kind of disappointed about is that uh, we're working until. December 24th, like Christmas isn't celebrated in Japan as a holiday. They do acknowledge it as kind of like this kind of day where they eat Christmas cake and stuff. They kind of, they think it's nice, but we're working, you know, right up to the Christmas Eve. And I feel like I don't have any chance to really get ready for the holiday. Festive, you know? no festive yeah. time. Yeah. The well, big holiday here is New Year's as we mentioned last yeah. week. So yeah. anyway, if you haven't got your festive fill of Christmas tunes, go back to last week's episode. I can pick it's up a really few things great. from there. We love, I want to say we love Christmas tunes, despite what we're, these little yeah, we just don't like Christmas. That's <laughs> no, we like Christmas too. We do, we we like Christian Christmas. We're not too crazy, but Dickensian Christmas. Let's yeah. just say it that way. Home yeah. and Hearth and all that. Bye bye bye. Nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we just offended like half of our listeners. I think, if not all we? of them. So yes. how dare uh, we? Anyway, uh, yeah. you could check that out for last week uh, if you want some Christmas tunes and. The year in review comes up for episode 43, and then we'll be yep. off to new things for 2022. So yeah, this has been indeed. episode 42 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, as always, uh, thanks for listening all the way to the end, if you're still here. And uh, do like or subscribe on whatever service you're listening to us on, whatever and, platform. And send us an email wishing us a Merry Christmas. Yeah. Or a Happy wish, New Year. Or both. Please do. Or both at Adult Music Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll be back again one more time the day after Christmas. So when you're bored with all your presents and you got those socks from mom that you needed, but they weren't oh, very exciting. Oh, you need to recover from what Uncle George said about you at the dinner table. That's right. You can tune in the next day <laughs> and uh, we'll give you some... Uh, new music to listen to to tide you over to new year's so until then merry christmas well, be new old music yeah <laughs> new old music merry you christmas. should listen to it all again because it's that great it's that great and yeah. not happy new year's yet we'll wish you that next week yeah merry so, christmas everybody have a merry christmas and if you didn't get the present that you want Go out and buy it for yourself. Because <laughs> that's, that's what, what I always do. do. Yeah, that's what I always do. That's right. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you again the day after Christmas, episode 43.